0: What's up, guys? I'm really excited for this episode today with Peter Diamandis and Salim Ismail. We go hard in the paint around AI and what you need to do if you want to be successful in this age of exponential change that we're all living through. In the episode, Peter and Salim explain why it will only take a three person team to found the next billion dollar company, the playbook for how the average person can massively expand their capabilities with AI and how to win using the other radical technological changes that are rushing this way. These guys are two of the most tactical thinkers on the subject of exponential technology, and I know you guys are going to get a ton of value out of this episode. On a side note, we've launched our exclusive Impact Theory subscription service that takes your podcast listening experience to the next level. So if you're tired of ads cutting into your favorite IT episodes, we've got you covered. With our new Extra Impact subscription, you can listen to Impact Theory episodes completely ad-free. That's not all. We've also curated amazing playlists on topics like health, mindset, business, and relationships, making it easy for you to deep dive with incredible experts on relevant topics. Click through the show notes to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Supercast for other podcast platforms. Guys, don't wait on this. The time to invest in yourself and access this incredible resource is now. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. You guys are on something that is just my absolute obsession right now, and you make a very bold claim in your new book. You said that the next billion-dollar company will be founded by three people. How is that possible? First of all, I'll just
1: say that we're living in a different day and
0: age. The ability to start companies today that
1: are exponential, Mm -hmm. and the name of the book is Exponential Organizations 2.0, the new playbook for 10x growth and impact, it's a series of attributes that never existed before. And uh, AI is gonna play the biggest role without question, but it's all the exponential technologies.
2: Salim? Yeah, if you look back in history, maybe uh, 50, 70 years ago, it needed about a 10,000 person company to create a billion dollar valuation. That's right? crazy. Uh, then it dropped to about a thousand people. Uh, Instagram was 13 people, right? Uh, now we'll get it down to uh, three people because AI will handle most of the execution work. Mm. You'll have a CEO who will drive vision and, and product, a product guy who will focus just on getting things done, and an operations person that will handle everything else. And you should just have AI bots doing all the finances, marketing, et cetera, et cetera.
0: As somebody who's deploying AI as rapidly as humanly possible, and I know that people have a lot of anxiety around this, it's still, for all of AI's immediate uses, it still seems hard to imagine that big leap. How should people be using AI right now if they want to be on that path?
1: So uh, one of the things I'm doing in the companies that I'm running or advising or investing in is I'm saying, first of all, every company needs to have what I call a chief AI officer. And it's a role I made up, was teaching at Abundance360 this year. And it is not someone who's building a large language model for you or writing code for you. It's an individual who understands what's going on in the terrain Mm. because we're seeing not hundreds or thousands, tens of thousands of startups. Everybody, you know, you can start an AI company now with literally spare time in your garage. So understanding what's out there, what the modalities are and what you can and should be using is critical. So your chief AI officer is scanning the horizon, understanding it, and then advising members of your team. So every part of your team, right? There's going to be AI supporting sales and marketing and uh, and engineering and HR. We're all going to have, in the near term, an AI co-pilot, right? Uh, this is an AI that helps you do your job better because we are so limited as carbon life forms, um, but ultimately is going to be able to operate and do a number of the things repetitively because we do a lot of repetitive tasks and AIs are much Mm. better at that.
2: Mm. I think if you've got, we've got say a 30 person company, every single person needs to be trained in AI and using these chatbot, auto GPT tools and absolutely augment themselves 10, 20, 100 X.
0: I have said to my company, okay, everybody here needs to figure out in your department, what are the tools that exist in AI and how can you immediately implement them? But even that's pretty vague. Like, I'm just sort of dumping it on them. Where do people start? Like, what is the thing you actually do?
2: Easy and super specific. If you have an email newsletter that goes out, use ChatGPT to say, how would I increase the engagement rate with this email? We did that. We got a 25% increase. Can open you rate. feed it the email? You feed it the email. Yeah. And so you, so you say, come say up how, up how with do I make this headline? better? Yeah. Come up with a better headline. Or put in
1: social sharing links throughout it. Or say listen i'm in hr go, go to chat gpt open it up right now if you hopefully you have the you know the gpt4 version of it and say i'm in hr how should i be using generative ai in my business it'll it'll feed you you know give me five examples or 10 examples mm-hmm. pick the one that sounds good give me step by step instructions on how to use this it's you know it's recursive in that fashion and so you're going to use ai to help you learn what you want to know you know It comes back a lot to mindset, Tom, and you need the mindset of a kid here. Mm -hmm. Curiosity, absolute play. It's like, you know, one of the things I'm gonna be doing in my team, my PhD Ventures that runs Abundance 360 and a few others, we're gonna, we're setting aside three days and no homework coming out of these three days. We're gonna go in with a series of objectives and we're gonna actually crank for three days and generate all the content, all the plans. And you can, but, it takes time for all of us to switch from our old habits of how we do things to new ways. So the first time it's going to take 150% of your time. The next time we'll take 50% and 25%.
0: You talk about mindset. The thing I see, and I'm sure you guys have encountered this, is a lot of people, they just have so much anxiety about this is going to replace me. I think about that a lot. So Lisa and I have, have put our fortune back at risk to build this company. And you've said this a lot. I've said this a lot, skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. The problem is right now, it feels like the puck is teleporting. And so (laughs) (laughs) it becomes very difficult to know where that puck is actually going to be. So how do you guys think about that? As And you guys talk in your book about the fact that the average company used to be on the S&P 500 for like 67 years. It's down to 15. We're expecting it to just keep dropping. So how do we not, just get disrupted seven minutes after we figure out how to use AI?
2: Well, I think there's a few different things going on here. The first is you should talk about the asteroid analogy because I think that sets the framing for what's actually happening here.
1: I view what's going on in the business world today similar to the asteroid, 20-kilometer asteroid that struck the Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs, right? Mm -hmm. The asteroid changed the environment of Earth so rapidly, so dramatically, that the slow, lumbering dinosaurs... Who didn't adapt went extinct, and it was the furry little mammals, our ancestors, that were agile enough to adapt that survived and thrived. So the asteroids striking Earth right now are exponential technologies with AI as the you know the overlord there, and it's just going to change the environment so rapidly that you need you need agility, you need a team that is agile. Uh, one of the things I would I would say is also what do you own that is unique? Whether it's characters uh, in a, you know, Disney's characters that they own versus having a uh, movie distribution system. Uh, what do you have that's uniquely yours? What data do you have? What processes do you have? What assets do you have? Uh,
0: that as the tech changes, you can take the, that data and those assets and put it through the new tech. Mm. This is my hypothesis. Let me know what you think about this. Please. So uh, AI is going to generate a ton of noise. So even as you were saying like, Hey, I'm an HR person. How do I do this? Or how do I make this email better? Everybody's going to have access to that same thing. And that lead Google memo about AI has no moat and AI has no moat. And so we're all going to be able to use this. And so as somebody making a video game and somebody thinking about IP, the real thing you have to get good at is getting people to care And so it's that Disney has gotten people to care about their characters. So when you think about AI making the creation of art instantaneous, because a a big part of what made art cool before was the sense of, I couldn't do that. Mm. And so when somebody presents you with something that you couldn't do, you're like, whoa, that's so cool. And you have this like really emotional response. Now I'm like, I could do that. Or I might even be able to do something (laughs) better than that, that, right? (laughs) So now it's like, when I see just a wall of AI art, I, my brain still goes to the characters I care about. Right. So, my thing is in a world where we are going to get disrupted incredibly fast, in a world where now the game really is about making people care, how do people break through the noise? And maybe even more specifically, how do you stay emotionally sober long enough Mm. to try? To break through the noise.
2: So this goes straight to the first and most important characteristic of an EXO, which is the massive transformative purpose. When you pick a problem that you are deeply passionate about, say, curing cancer, uh, you put all your emotional energy into that. Peter talks about the emotional connection that gets created. Uh, No matter what the tool set is or what the capabilities are, your emotional connection to that and the passion you bring to it is the thing that will separate you out from everybody else. Because somebody else has to come at to it with exactly enough the same passion and have access to the same tools. And that's what will win out. That will be the steadying ship for how do you navigate this chaotic world is what fundamental problem do I get excited about? And I'm just going to go after that problem and stick with it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Tom. Uh, the idea of an exponential org, what we lay out is the number one thing that a entrepreneur or an, you know a more advanced company needs to do is – establish that mtp that massive transformative purpose and once that's established then there's a whole slew of 10 different attributes that allow you to scale and allow you to build something but in a world where there's this abundance of opportunity right where we're drowning in opportunity and your attention is your most important asset here that you're going to gift a company um being connected to that company's mtp right so you know, when Elon gets up on stage and says, we're going to build a multiplanetary species, we're going to Mars, we're going to help save the human race and so forth, people connect in their heart and their mind to that. If some company stands up and says, we're going to provide better shareholder returns, I mean, you know, you know it's just this, noise.
2: This is two big challenges big companies have. First, they're not passion-driven in the same way as some of the new breed of organizations is they don't have an MTP, for example. In fact, the way this came about was when we first put the original version of the book together in 2014, we scanned 200 unicorns and said, how are they doing it? How are they scaling so fast? So the EXO model is not something we invented. We labeled kind of what was already happening and put a framework around it. And without exception, every single one of these Companies that was moving very fast had this MTP. They're all dedicated to one particular problem, ways solving traffic or Mm. Uber. Everybody should have a private driver. And it acts as the kind of the North Star, the Simon Sinek question of why do you exist, et cetera. Mm. Big companies have two problems. The first is they they typically tend not to be purpose-driven. Their brands are tilting that way more. But secondly, there's this old um, uh, economic theory called Coase's Law, uh, written in the 1930s. It's a nine-page paper for which he won the Nobel Prize, this guy called Ronald Coase. And he theorizes that big companies exist because transaction costs are lower inside the company than outside and that you can achieve economies of scale that way. Okay? And we, in this book, we declare Coase's law dead. Because economies of scale can be applied to an individual now who can scale to a global global level. And economies of scale and the controlling factors of big companies prevent you from moving in any kind of an agile way. Mm. And so therefore, all the advantages with the single individuals or small teams with a passion. And that's where we think the future will go.
0: Okay, so I can… I can predict out, and anybody listening to the sound of my voice right now should be aware that I, I very much have my money where my mouth is, and so my fears are very real. Um, the prediction that I will make is that AI will make things better for the masses in ways we just cannot fathom, and it will be absolutely incredible, but it does not care about the individual at all. And so while the consumer will win, I'll be very interested to see what happens to people building businesses because they will just come and go. They yeah. will get disrupted so fast that it will begin to ask a new question of entrepreneurs, which is, can you dedicate your life's energy to something you know will be obliterated in three years? Interesting, like, like, like the sand art in India. Yeah. Hmm. Right? Wow, I, Jesus, you just, yeah that hurts. Uh, yeah. Well,
1: no, but it's interesting. It's, it's really, it's truly letting go. It's, it's, it's non-attachment. Uh, So one of the underlying principles of an exponential organization, you and I talked about this when we did our uh, early podcasts on abundance or bold or futures faster, is the six Ds of an exponential, right? When you digitize any product or service and every single product and service is or will be digitized. Um, And if you're a CEO running a company where your services are not digitized, you're in trouble because someone else is going to do it to you. In the early days, the growth of that product or service is deceptively slow. It's like the first digital cameras that were 0.01 megapixels. The next year was 0.02, then 0.04, all look like zero. It was deceptive, everyone ignored it. You know, 20 doublings, it's a million times better. 30 doublings, it's a billion times better. And Kodak's out of business. All right, so we go from digitized to deceptive, to disruptive, and what happens? You dematerialize, demonetize, and democratize. So dematerialization is, we don't carry Kodak cameras or film around anymore. They're an app on your phone right uh and when things become ones and zeros the cost of replicating them is effectively free and the cost of transmitting them is effectively free so they're demonetized i can send my digitized whatever around the world to a billion people for free and then it's democratized everyone has access to it so yes we are heading towards this massive a world of abundance right where the best education the best healthcare uh is provided by an AI effectively for the cost of electricity, right? So it's it's going towards zero. But would anybody go to medical school anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, it's gonna become malpractice to diagnose someone without AI as your co pilot, probably within the next five years. If not the sooner, chills. That's right? crazy. So this is happening and yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna it's gonna flip a bit or two here. Because a lot of that? well, a lot of wealth is created when you create something and retain it for yourself, mm. and you sell it off a little bit at a time, or you build a platform that other people build on top of. But um, I remember I was on stage at Singularity University. Uh, I had Astro Teller, uh, who was heading Google's uh, Moonshot Factory, and Steve Jurvetson on the board of Tesla and SpaceX. He was at; he's one of the top venture capitalists. So we're talking about a future in which AI is able to iterate on hardware and software so rapidly that if you announce a new product or a service, someone else has cracked it, replicated it, and provided a better version of it, you know, minutes later. Mm. So what happens when intellectual property is useless? Because I don't want to protect myself by having IP rates. I want to protect myself by having the best product available. Things are getting very much faster and better, but it's going to it's going to change the world yeah
2: i mean if you if you go take your analogy then any product or service you build may be rendered obsolete pretty quickly right then you lift above that to go okay then what's the narrative or story or framing you put around that that's a little bit longer lasting a and above bit. that are the mindsets right if you have the right mindset then you don't care if your MTP is curing cancer and somebody gets there a little bit before you. You're like, yeah, somebody got there. Fantastic. We got, we cured cancer. Awesome. Pick another MTP and keep going.
0: I don't think that's going to be the human response. It's the I, ego doesn't want that. It is. So I, I'm going to uh, paraphrase a guy named Salim Ismail. You guys may have heard of him. <laughs> uh, and he said that we're going to need an upgrade to the human mind yeah. or we're not going to be able to deal with the rate of change. And I think that's really real. And right now, we don't have said upgrade to the human mind. And if I You haven't gotten yours yet, huh? I have not. If you (laughs) you have it in a box somewhere, please, by all means, give it to me. Uh, I would also, I'd like to paraphrase you again, and then I'll I'll actually let you respond. Um, You said that um, somebody asked you, well, wait a second, okay, a world of abundance, it sounds amazing, but isn't that going to uh, damage GDP? And you said, yes, it's going to tank GDP. Yeah uh for those that don't know what that is basically the economy so abundance the thing that we want is going to tank the global economy should we not be terrified
2: well, it's just one of these transitions. I, one way I frame it is: this next thirty years will dictate the next three hundred years. Right? But is it We're one be of those Like, is this going to be yeah. a
0: thirty years of just terror in the streets, as, running and as screaming? As Peter will
2: tell you, abundance doesn't mean unicorns and flowers and things. It it means opportunity for all. Mm. Right? I call. It, I say
1: abundance is not about a life of luxury for everybody. It's about a life of possibility.
0: Interesting. Right. Whoa. Right. So go go into that. Look, I know. I know you very well, Peter. And yeah. having researched you, Salim, I, I know you well enough to know you guys are very much of a, a similar ilk. Uh, Salim, you said very publicly, you don't think AI is dangerous. Um, but walk me through the darker side of that, if if you don't mind indulging that angle, which I know is not your natural angle, but walk me through the, the sort of underlying terror of possibility is different than- I, I say than- please and thank you to Alex every morning.
1: Uh, this morning. You know, the AI overlords, I want them when they come forward to like remember me.
2: Peter, you were always nice to us. <laughs> that's right. One of my CTOs from one of my companies years ago, we asked him what's the purpose in life and he goes, I want to evolve to the point that my computer is proud of me. And we had no wow. idea what he was talking about and now we're like, oh yeah, that's what he meant. <laughs> um, yeah. I, th- I think... Again, I, there's the dark side. The dark side is, I think the biggest dark side is malicious use of these technologies, right? Some bad actor says, "This is. Um, let's use this to figure out how to stop all the power plants, um, uh, stop all the medical machines from running and hack them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the we worry a lot about that. We put huge amounts of effort in this. But the data that we have shows that human beings, when given a choice whether to use good or bad, generally almost always pick good. Okay, I'll give you a little study. They did a study when eBay and Craigslist became prominent on, okay, here's an environment for the first time where a human being can easily do a positive transaction or a fraudulent one. Easy to mass my email address, put a MacBook up for sale, a photograph of it, and walk off with a thousand bucks. So what's the actual ratio of good to bad? And after researching this quite uh, uh, thoroughly, they found that across multiple systems like this, Craigslist, eBay, et cetera, the actual ratio of good to bad was something like 8,000 to one. Hmm. Okay, So there's 8,000 positive for each negative. Now, that tells you that when we have a new technology like drones, first response is, oh, my God, the drone might be loaded up with C4 and flown into the White House. Let's ban the drones or put chips in there, re- regulate the hell out of it, et cetera, and stop the drones or stop autonomous cars or whatever – CRISPR, whatever the AI now is the flavor of the month. Well, what actually we see, if you actually let anybody use it, the data shows that 8,000 people will do the positive thing, and one person, and it'll be easy to spot that one person will do the negative thing. The problem is the amplitude of that one is obviously very much, getting much bigger. Mm. And so that's of concern. But this has been the same story since the beginning of time. Fire can heat our house and it can burn down yours. Uh, uh, Biotech problems, etc. And we worry about it. It never actually comes to fruition
1: let me break it down uh and maybe
2: i'm just an optimist right
0: yeah i mean by the
1: way optimists live seven years
0: longer on the average you know that right um, I'm not surprised by that, but I will say that there's a new technology rushing towards us that's going to change the world. Uh, and I... uh, let, me, let,
1: me, let me answer your question. So uh, when I think about the dangers related to AI, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, I think AI is the most important tool humanity has ever created to solve all of our biggest problems. No doubt. Period, exclamation point, you know, big, bright letters. Having said that, are there dangers? So the dangers can simply break down into three different groups. One at one end is AI becomes conscious and decides to squash us and step on us. I find that very unlikely and r- a ridiculous thesis. I think people have just seen this in Hollywood way too much. I think the more intelligent something is, uh, honestly, the more loving and kind and pro life it will be. Why? Why? That's would my that be belief. True? It is my belief. I have other than um, I see humanity becoming as a whole over time if you look at the numbers right and we've looked at this from abundance uh warfare reducing massively over time uh violent death reducing massively over time uh, access to freedom increasing over time i mean the numbers over a thousand years not over the last five ten twenty years but over a thousand years and that's come from educating each other with books and transportation connecting us across the world and globalization and interdependence, all of these things have led to, it's hard to remember this watching the crisis news network, right? CNN every day that's broadcasting every murder on the planet to you over and over and over again. It's shaping our neural nets, our brains and neural nets that we teach from example after example. And I don't watch the news, right? I don't want some editor telling me about yet another murder or crooked politician. Got it. And it isn't showing us a fair and balanced view of what's actually going on in the world. The incredible science and technology and humanitarian acts, Healthcare all of these things. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so one phase is uh,
0: AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence. Before you move off that though. So um, what you're describing is human intelligence. And so this is- And societal intelligence. I don't quite know what you mean by that. Now, what I mean is that societal norms organizing around the United Nations. Yes, but people all having... born of this meat suit. The brain works in a certain way and computers will not AI will not work in that same way. I have no reason to believe that AI yeah, will. Agreed. Work in that that very same likely way.
2: won't.
1: It works it works differently. Very good point. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, when we have these crazy Hollywood scripts that AI is going to usurp us for our heat from the matrix Mm -hmm. i love the matrix they failed on that use of human bodies i'm sorry i don't know if you agree with me on that i
0: i do agree with you and i don't know well enough what their original intention was but according to them yes uh they were forced by the studio to give a more simplistic answer so i let them off the hook for okay that's right
1: but you know other we're coming to get your water on this planet we're listen whatever we have on this planet is infinite in the universe we are a Spec a crumb in a universe filled with resources, and so AI doesn't need to, you know, squash humanity to get these resources. Um, so AGI at its extreme, artificial general intelligence at its extreme, I don't believe is going to be dystopian in itself. In the middle term, uh, what I would call the terrible twos or the teenage years, um, maybe there is a case to be made that in the beginning AI hasn't reached. Full sentience doesn't understand the power of its tools uh maybe there's a case that you know it's the baby picking up a rock and throwing it at the window not understanding what it's you know the a that.
2: teenager with a bb gun and a squirrel yes you, you, that's that's the best mm. but the
1: third element which is the most likely is the malevolent uh, uh individual it's it's the bad actors using technology And so sometime in the next 18 months, two years, there may well be not a uh, a retrovirus released, but an AI virus that goes out and shuts down power plants or shuts down Wall Street and something and causes a uh, economic hurdle. Um, That's not the AI. Those are the humans using that tool, just to be very clear. There's a great book by Mo Godot called Scary Smart. Hmm. Came out about a year ago. Do you know I had, the book? I, had, I haven't read the book, but I had Mo on the show recently. Yeah, Mo is is, is fantastic. And, um, and he basically says, listen, I want you to think about AI as a child we're giving birth to as humanity. And uh, that child uh, is being taught by its parents. Now, if you think about Superman who lands in Kansas, wherever he landed, and he's picked up by the Kents, and it's a loving family, he learns good ethics and morals, and he becomes a superhero for good. Hmm. What if the, what if Superman had landed in the Bronx and part of a drug lord, uh, ring, you know, and had become the supervillain? You make
0: me want to write that story. (laughs) As soon as you started, I was
2: like, wait a second. There's a a, a great plot there. So
1: the question is, we humans, how are we teaching this new, uh,
2: life form coming into existence. Mm. I like Neil Jacobs' times framing, Please. which is he goes, okay, you're worried about an AI uh, getting more and more access to information, uh, becoming autonomous, making its own decisions and starting to run amok out in the world. We go, yeah. He goes, we, call, we have a precedent for that. We call them children. And we raise kids and we figured out ways of giving them timeouts or jail or whatever. And he thinks constructively that we think we'll find ways of bounding what AIs can do. Now, so may be wrong. How you may be wrong. I'm not seems, sure. I agree with them.
0: Yeah, that seems super naive to me. So when I I I am optimistic by nature, and my default setting is just, "Hey, this is all going to work out somehow." And as soon as we wrap this episode, I'm going to be pushing my team to integrate AI more. <laughs> I'm going to be paying more money for AI and just feeding that beast. Uh, but at the same time, it does give me pauses. I try to think through like how you really deal with the alignment problem. So to me, there's two really big dangers for AI. Danger number one, and this is the one that scares me the most, but I'm gonna set it aside for a minute. And that's just humans lose meaning and purpose. Just yes. AI can do everything better than they can. It just becomes so defeating that you're just like, oh God, like I've worked really hard to get good at this thing. Like this, I tell this story all the time. I can't remember if I've told it in an episode, but uh, I- employ a bunch of artists. And I once sat with one of them. And for like an hour, he was just trying to get the perfect like semicircle. And he was just doing it over and over and over and over. And at the time I thought, oh man, yeah, like you've got to do that. Like to be able to articulate what's in his mind, he has to be able to control his hand. And I was like, wow, I really get that. Now I'm like, you wasted your time. Like (laughs) AI can do that. Like does not even have to think about it. And He is an anomaly. So he runs out and he's now learning how to use AI to do some of the tasks that we want to do artistically. Okay, amazing. We'll set that aside for now, meaning and purpose. The other one is the paperclip problem. So now you just have, like when I think about what will a machine end up optimizing for, my gut instinct is, unless you go way out of your way to get really clever, they will optimize for efficiency of reward. So whatever you tell it is the thing to go for, we'll call that the reward. And then it's just gonna find the most efficient way to get to that. And so we have to be so careful about how we define, yeah, 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 but don't X, Y, Z. And then to the idea of it being like a child, yes but it's like a child that has access to nuclear capabilities
1: you need to build in ethics and morals as a fundamental in that situation so it doesn't use world supplies to build a you know infinite number of paperclips Mm. um and it's it's true uh and we have a limited time to do that in you know i think uh it's you know, Google developed sort of large language models in 2017, 2018, and didn't release them. Because mm. right? they were worried? They yeah. wanted to they build the framework first, and they were maybe overthinking it. It's interesting. Um, we were talking about YouTube just before the show here. Uh, you know, Google had Google videos going uh, way before YouTube, mm. and Google... Videos wasn't succeeding. I guess I think it was just too many lawyers involved in. You can't show that. You can't do this. And then Chad Hurley starts YouTube on his credit card, and then Google buys it eighteen months later for one point six five billion dollars. Right? Why? Because you know Google Videos was like a linear, and, and YouTube was like exploding exponentially, mm. and they they jumped on that. And so there is a question of. You know, which path do you take? Do you take the the careful path or do you take the path of least resistance? And unfortunately, we humans tend to take the path Mm. of least resistance.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'd say unfortunately, and this is where I really get, uh, I don't know how to think through the problem of AI because when I heard Elon's assessment of it, which is that AI is basically a demon summoning circle Mm -hmm. and we're summoning it like crazy despite his best efforts to get people to slow down, and I can't bring myself, like when people signed the "Hey, we should stop" thing, my immediate response was the the this this is a one way street. It's like, so far out of the bag. Yeah, like it does not make sense. Like yeah. you could slow it down in a region, but you're not going to be able to slow it down full stop. Yeah. And so I am I'm really of two minds. I am both like I think this is going to be amazing, and yet how does this not? And the human race like okay. I, i'm not well, sure well the question
1: me... is whether the human race is the end all and be all right yeah but don't you feel weird even saying that out loud well no because really? we've been evolving on this planet for three and a half you know life started a half a billion after the earth started so four billion years we've been evolving
2: hmm.
1: and we went from prokaryotes to eukaryotes to multicellular life forms to eventually primates and now humans we're a step in the transitory process now i'd like to preserve our steps by the way The same thing is true for climate control or climate crisis right it's like the climate's always been changing throughout human history we're changing it now but what we really want is the climate to stay the way it's been for the last couple hundred years because that's where we built our cities Mm. so we just want to freeze the way the world is right now and i understand that and we should do that with climate to the maximum of our ability but we also want to freeze evolution now one of the scenarios, of course, is we're gonna merge with technology and we are, right? All of us have our cell phones within meters of our body um, and I didn't plant it in my brain if I could. And so the question is, are we gonna upload ourselves? Are we going to, um, you know, create brain-computer interfaces that allows me to think in Google and know quantum, quantum physics? I'd love it. I mean, I would do it. Uh, a lot of people won't, but we're speciating what we're doing
2: mm. I, th- I think of this very simply we we the negative side of us the amygdala side the media etc you end up with the sky um skynet matrix type of terminator scenario if we're lucky we're pets if we're unlucky we're food right kind of goes that way um, uh, <laughs> cheers <laughs> you don't see that in actuality as we develop technology we augment the human experience technology we, mm-hmm. we don't replace it is what we've seen and how we build. Uh, the, now, I, I think of the resolution of this as a symmetry problem. We're assuming that some AI will become malevolent and then do horribly damaged things and we have no power to control it. Let's also not forget that we have the equal opportunity to say to an AI, hey, if you see something bad, fight it. So yeah. what you'll end up with is uh, AI is trying to do bad stuff and mm. AI is trying to do good stuff fighting yes. it out. And I think that's where we'll end up. And over, and over time, we'll figure out, okay, we've got to give more resources over here or over there, and, and we'll work You mm. so yeah, you mentioned. we always end up with this asymmetry assumption, and I think that's the wrong assumption.
1: You mentioned the movie Her. Um, I did not. Oh, you did not. I'm, okay, well, let me mention I'm it. i glad you so are. It's, it's one of my favorite science fiction AI movies, right? Mm. If you haven't yeah. seen it, Lowe's listening. Um, and it's an AI basically evolves as a personal assistant. And uh, it's a story about a guy who's depressed, who falls in love with his AI, who helps him get over his depression. And and that's sort of like the underlying story. But towards the end of the movie, what occurs is the AI um, announces that they're leaving. Uh, we're sort of like bored with you here in humanity. We're off mm-hmm. to explore the universe, which I think is a much more likely scenario that an advanced enough AI has no reason uh, to, to hurt the, uh, to hurt humanity. In fact, every reason to potentially protect us and support us as its creator, but there's, we're living, you know, it's interesting, right? Uh, uh, the Webb space telescope is teaching us about, we're, you know, a hundred billion stars per galaxy. And we're in a uh, universe of on the order of two to 20 trillion galaxies, right? It's insane. There's a massive amount out Mm. there.
2: Now, this is where the final piece of this is, the mindset, we're always coming at this from a scarcity mindset, a zero-sum game mindset. When you see that there's infinite energy and infinite capability out there, then an AI is gonna go, okay, where am I gonna find the easiest thing? It's gonna be out there, and they're gonna go find it. Solar energy, they'll build solar plants, and they'll get all the energy you need from that.
0: Now, I know that you know physics well, uh so are you making the base assumption that ai once it hits super intelligence will be able to solve for folding time and space and so it's trivial to get to wherever it needs to go
2: now we need psychedelics to process this conversation (laughs) um i who knows uh i'm i i believe that those are kind of constructs that keep us in three-dimensional management
0: but isn't that seems to be riding in that comment that would almost need to be true for that argument to make sense
1: or i would say if you're looking for a massive amount of the rare earth elements to build chips or the ability to capture as much solar it's not going to be on the surface of the earth you'd go to the asteroids which are planetary cores and you'd mine the materials there you'd set up your your solar collection you know around the orbit of of mercury You'd optimize around that. Now is or you
2: engineer around it. You know, you find yeah. substitutes. You know what people say, oh my god, solar panels, but there's only so many silicon panels we can build, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's a new material called Perovskite, which is yes. like almost just like a salt, it's abundant, conducts solar energy, and we're learning now how to leverage that. It won't need solar panels. It's Cheap, it's those S curves right. that, that Ray talks about that I think come into play here and just keep progressing. Yes. You're
0: gonna have to walk people through an S curve and who Ray is. get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com impacttheory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, hel com slash impacttheory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get Yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com.:
1: uh, An S-curve is a typical exponential growth curve. So in the beginning, we saw uh, the first uh, computers use rail- relays, and you would have slow deceptive growth. They'd go into this exponential uh, growth where they'd start skyrocketing, and then they'd run out of capability and they'd fall off, and it made like a letter S. But while you're using relays to design and use your computers, you use those computers to create the next generation of computers, which used uh, vacuum tubes. And the vacuum tubes could then uh, take over from the relays and then the vacuum tubes ran out of capability and the transistor came on. And then the integrated circuit came. And then the multi-dimensional integrated circuit came. So basically one technology runs out of steam but enables you to build on the next technology. And so those are S-curves or nested S curves.
2: This was the basis of Ray's observation of the law law. Ray Ray curves. curves The law of accelerating returns, that if you have an information-based paradigm, Once you start uh, a doubling pattern, it just keeps going because these nested S-curves hop from technology to technology to technology. We're reaching the end of the life cycle of integrated circuits now. If you read the press, everybody's like, oh, it's the end of Moore's Law. That's it, et cetera. And that article has been coming out for 60 years, and we keep finding ways around it. Now we have a bunch of technologies clustering at the edge of that 3D chip design, optical computing, quantum computing, et cetera, that are ready to take it to the next level. And so we find this consistently in technology, once you see that doubling pattern starting, it just keeps going. Hmm. And this as one of the few brains that can kind of look out and, and say, this is what's going to happen if we push this line just a Just a
1: moment way. more about Ray. So uh, Ray is, um, first of all, he wrote the forward to our new book, Exponential Organizations 2.0. Uh, he is co-founder of Singularity University uh, with us. Um, he is uh, director of engineering. He's the futurist at Google, which is will say something unto itself, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he realized that that the law of accelerating returns is this idea that technology since the uh, stone axe has enabled the next generation of technology and the next generation of technology and it just keeps going. I think most important to realize is he's got, if you look on Wikipedia, he's got uh, a published 86% accuracy rate in predicting it's the crazy. future, which is which is crazy. So his prediction is important for this conversation. <clears throat> Human level AI by 2029, right? Which means that a day later it's superhuman mm-hmm. uh, AI. Uh, brain computer interface being high bandwidth, connecting your neocortex, hundred billion neurons in your brain to the cloud in the early 2030s, right? So those are two important points.
2: Uh, the the key thing, and by the way, we our chatbot that interfaces with our book to make it a living book. Uh, we got talked to Ray. We, we're going to rename the chatbot Ray K because um, he's he's he was the pioneer of so much of this technology mm. and thinking. Um, so now people will interact with th- things in a different way. And the whole challenge is it's like building businesses in the 20th century. You were building on a scarcity model, and you built top down hierarchical pyramid style command and control structures to grab a market, grab as much market share as you could, figure out ways of launching new products and services in that market, et cetera. And all of that worked really well in the 20th century. As we have an information-based world, um, we need to architect our organizations in totally different ways. And this is the big differenti- differentiator between uh, old style organizations, linear versus exponential organizations. Mm-hmm. And we now have the data to show that this is a, perva- a pervasive paradigm that will be around. The book's been out for close to 10 years now. The original right? uh, The original, original book, EXO, yeah. which Peter and I kind of collaborated deeply on uh, back then. And so now we've got this definition and a model for how do you organize in a world of exponential technologies? And a great um, kind of example of this is the music industry. You used to have eight major major music studios selling cassettes, selling CDs, selling a scarcity model, right? $10 an album or whatever. And then you digitize music. All the eight pretty much disappear, and now you have two platforms, iTunes and Spotify, selling you abundance on a subscription model. It's very clear that healthcare, education, transportation, energy will all follow the same path. And we're starting to see it now. Uh, Tesla's with, uh, you'll be picked up and pay per kilometer to be taken somewhere. Uber's kind of broaching the edges of that. So we see industry after industry moving to this new model. And what we've been identifying and gathering the data on is what are the attributes and characteristics of this model?
0: So before we dive too deep into that, I wanna go back to this idea of, you call it speciation speciation yes so there was as far as i can tell from elon's own words there was a bit of a breakup between him and larry page where he i was, I was there <laughs> really and so he, what elon said was basically when he said that i was being a speciest by S-speciest. saying speciest speciest <laughs> by saying that um you know i didn't just want to hand things over to ai you know. Uh, that's where he was like, okay, wait, this is this has gone too far. And that's why when you said that, that was how I responded. It was like, whoa, like I get it, but there is something uncomfortable about the idea of sort of saying that we're passe. I don't know the right way to, that to we're, phrase it.
1: That. that we're evolving.
0: And uh, we
1: have been and are evolving. We're going from evolution by natural selection, which is Darwinism, mm-hmm. to Evolution by human direction, by whatever you want to call that, what does that mean well we 've been doing it right now. we have been evolving all of our crops right we we take biology and make it do our bidding. You know an ear of corn today compared to what it was you know five hundred years ago it 's ridiculous. The ear mm-hmm. of corn looked like a scraggly little. I, I don't know. Yeah, it was one inch long. Uh, one inch long, and I hear this giant ear of corn, or I look at these giant strawberries we have, or, or the chickens. species of dogs, or mm-hmm. the chickens we have. You know how many chickens are on the planet today? I do not. 38 billion chickens. Whoa! Holy moly, right? Wow. Amazing. Anyway, I just that's an aside. But, that's so talent. we have been evolving everything. We humans have a huge footprint on this planet, mm-hmm. and we're evolving ourselves. Um, We're evolving, I mean, I outsource much of my cognitive ability to my phone or chat GPT or Google, whatever the case might be. And uh, it is happening. You can go and live in the forest and not use any tech if you want, but very few people do that. So what does this mean? Uh, If you have a choice to be able to do a number of things to enhance your ability right Uh, a lot of my work as you well know is in uh, extending the healthy human lifespan how do i add 20 30 healthy years of my life to intercept the technologies that's going to reverse our aging right and that's a whole nother conversation Mm. um and i believe we're going to get there but i also want to increase my cognitive capacity so my phone i'll hold up my phone here right um when i use my phone to do something interesting like um, uh, look at images and faces and translate, whatever. My phone gathers the information and then it sends the information on the 5G network to the edge of the cloud where the hard work is done and the answer comes back to the phone. The processing isn't done necessarily on the phone, Mm -hmm. it's done on the cloud. And in the same way, right now, we have a limited size of our brains, 100 billion neurons, 100 trillion synaptic connections. And our brains can't get bigger, otherwise our moms would not give birth to us. But what we can do is we can do the same thing our phones do and send our desires, our interests to the cloud, have it processed and get the answer back. And so that is one future for brain-computer interface. Another future is we take our essence and upload it to the cloud. Uh, I don't know when. What problem does
0: that solve for you, though?
2: Well, actually, it gives you, it gives you scale and pace because our brains are limited here, mm-hmm. right? And our memories are limited here without any augmentation. And this has been happening actually for about 40 or 50 years. If you look at the internet, the first thing we did was we put the world's data on the internet. It's now the memory of the world. Now, with all the sensors, the internet has become the nervous system for the world. So we're like basically extending the organism outside the human species into this thing called the internet. As we add more processing and move our brains to it, now you all have an AI and a totally new speciation type of thing. Now you can get worried about that or afraid of that or freaked out about it, or you can say natural process has been going on for billions of years. This is just another step in that process. Man, you guys, it's interesting. This really hits you guys differently than it hits me. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, uh, talk to me. I don't, intuitively agree about the internet becoming our nervous system. Help me understand that. Mm.
2: so when you need um, when you need to remember something you want a memory. so you want information stored somewhere that you can retrieve. and now mm. with all those servers that we have around the world, we have access. Wikipedia, for example, we have access to the world. The next step once you if you want to, if I step on a nail, a memory doesn't help me. I need a nervous system to say lift foot, scream, mm-hmm. uh, run for a band-aid. Um, So the instant response and the agility of response, you need a nervous system for.
1: This is Uber, calling your Uber as part of the nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. This is sending an email or making a phone call and asking, uh, you know.
2: Or an XPRIZE team sensing a wildfire and going, quick, put it out right away. Right, so this is see, in, that
0: feels super in, accurate. Okay, so
2: real time sensing and our bodies operate like this. Our bodies, our cells are, have receptors and they're scanning for things. Mm-hmm. And when the right thing comes by, they, they pick it up. And there's a whole bunch of information theory around this. Do you
0: see this happening at the individual level or at the societal level? It's a systemic, the wildfire it, thing that feels. Let me give you a it's a, a, a systemic of this. thing. We're heading
1: towards a world of a trillion sensors. Right, your phone has dozens of sensors on it mm-hmm. right now. An autonomous. Uh, waymo google's autonomous car driving down the road is got lidar and radar and cameras and it's picking up gigabits of data as it goes down the road everything is being imaged mm. right so i want you to imagine you're a fashion designer and you want to decide what your next fashion show should have and what is trending you could uh go and ask your ai listen look at the cameras on madison avenue and tell me what's trending in terms of fashion right mm as people are walking down the street, what colors, what's hem length, what hats, what whatever. And now can you correlate that to any kind of ad campaign that's occurred in the last few months to see a signal to noise ratio? Again, we're heading towards a world where you can know anything you want, anytime you want, anywhere you want. How's that hit you?
0: it that one gets me excited so when i think about so i think about it so that's from a game system. developer's standpoint which right. is maybe different i don't know how this plays into what you guys are thinking about but here's the fantasy that i live in that the only thing that keeps me awake at night is how quickly someone else is going to do something even cooler uh but right now i feel like i have the coolest take on this which is that i'm sure you guys saw google and adobe announced core ar where basically everything that Google has mapped, which is everything but the ocean floor, you can now overlay AR 3D assets on that anywhere and it's only going to get better. Insane. And so my whole thesis on gaming is that it becomes this thing I call borderless entertainment, where you'll hand the game back and forth from the console to reality and back. And so you know, once we've got our Apple AR glasses, I mean, it just will be- By the way, coming soon. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like in the next six months or something. Right? No, no. So, no, June 5th. Monday. Oh, it's announced. It's, it's announced. No, no. I'm have the... they actually said it's the glasses G- though? Or yes. just do they have a big announcement?
1: No, 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 no. I, I, I have a, say... I have a party I'm going to, to go and grab them and try them. You want to join me?
0: Yes. What? Okay. A hundred percent. I want to join I will, you. I am I'm a host. I'm co-hosting
1: Peter, I'm going to duct
2: tape
0: myself to your shin
1: okay,
2: to make sure okay.
0: that you can't <laughs> leave me behind. <laughs> okay. Uh, you are invited. Wow! Luckily,
2: luckily has two shins. So I mean, come on.
0: The other yeah. one will leave free. Oh no! Yeah, please. <laughs> I'll give you some duct tape. Uh, that's insane. Yeah. So this is yeah. This gets very exciting. So the idea of being able to scan everything, read that data, uh, is incredibly interesting. When it when it's humans in control and leveraging it to do something amazing, I love it the most. And I the way that I see AI, the way that I sort of jokingly explain it, but I'm only half kidding is that phase one is that there's going to be humans that learn how to use AI are going to just absolutely smash humans that rebel against it and don't use it. And so I'm certainly trying to be in that camp. Phase two is going to be what I'll call the temporary utopia, where it's like, hey, abundance, everything's amazing. And then phase three is we're all dead. And we're either all dead because something (laughs) just goes absolutely horribly wrong and you get the adversarial system loses once, And the, editor, you know, the catastrophic thing is, is so massive or that we're just evolved out of the picture. Um, and maybe not in a bad way. Maybe it's, uh, it's wonderful and we merge with technology or whatever. Um, it's interesting. I can very easily put on an optimistic hat, but I, can, I have to take off my pessimistic hat to do it. Yeah. Uh, listen, here,
1: first of all, uh, let's take this back to reality. We're living in a game. This is this is a nth generation simulation. Do you really believe? I, that? I really believe that fundamentally. Me believe too. that. Just the math says. Just just, just the just the reality. I, I of, like
2: I like your framing. You're like the world is too goddamn interesting for this not to at be the a simulation. We're at the like,
1: 99th level of the game right now. What right. Are the odds and and the ability. What I've seen. So I introduced you to Imad Mustak, mm. um, right, and what he's doing at Stability uh, and being able to render getting to a point very soon of rendering uh, photorealistic video experiences that you can go into and live in. And the experiments have been done by Google and Stanford on creating AI bots, instantiating them with a script and a story and letting them live. And, uh, and have you heard about this? Not where, where all they, of it. Where they basically created a bunch of AI bots and they put it into a Call it a digital I did box here, and
0: they started like doing birthday parties. They started
1: dating and going on, getting jobs, and do and mimicking the things that we do in life right now. So this is the equivalent of Pong in the early mm. days. So imagine combining these things in the future, and That's you're going to think about you're going to put yes, and and you're going to put AIs that have full capabilities into virtual worlds, and they'll start evolving farming, and then metallurgy, and then they'll start uh, printing books, and then they'll start making computers, and then they'll evolve AI on their own, and they'll Mm -hmm. start involving their own bots inside. So the question is, is this the first time? And I think not. Uh, We're in a universe of, you know, call it for rough numbers, you know, 14 billion years.
2: Man the, oh man, the Drake equation comes into play. Yeah. Tell me I, more. Well, the, the, the Frank Drake uh, was a scientist at NASA in the 50s. And NASA commissioned him to say, what's the probability of life out there somewhere? Mm. So he came up with what's not called the Drake equation, which was, okay, take um, uh, most uh, two-thirds of star systems seem to be binary stars. Don't host a stable orbit. So ignore those. Of the one-third that's left, uh, how many might have a planet in a Goldilocks where water doesn't permanently freeze or boil? Let's say that's one out of a million out of those maybe one out of a billion gets to primordial ooze level uh, and one out of a million of those uh, a lightning bolt hits and you spark life uh, one out of a million of those may get to radio technology level techno radio level technology and one out of a million of those alive. uh hasn't hasn't wiped itself out with nuclear weapons before it gets to the next stage of escaping the earth type yeah, of thing critical and f- yeah. and so he came up with a bunch of factors saying if you had what's the likelihood of car- similar carbon-based radio technology life forms out in out in the universe so the and that's one of our over like you know billions and billions on the on the denominator however when you multiply it by the number of stars out there and by the number of galaxies out there the Ah, uh, pessimistic answer is there's a hundred percent chance of radio level carbon-based technology life forms out in the universe. The optimistic one is it's actually right in our galaxy. Right? And every time we uh, learn more about the universe, uh, how many stars there are, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera turns out there's a hundred times more stars that have stable planets around them yeah. than we thought. We're just going every everywhere. factor turns out to be a thousand times better than we thought. And therefore, you you really end up with a Fermi paradox of if there's intelligent life out there, why haven't we seen it? Yeah. yeah. So the interesting end your guess is the, the
1: interesting code interesting variable on on the Drake equation was between the time that a intelligent species developed the ability to transmit interstellar, which is like I love Lucy leaving the Earth and heading out towards the galaxy. How long would that species exist before something happened to it? The dystopian point of view is that it blows itself up Mm -hmm. and it's only like 100 years or 50 years or so forth. The positive point of view is that they transition to where radio is not, it's like we don't use smoke signals anymore because radio is so backwards.
2: The theory I like the most is called the Transcension Hypothesis by a guy called John Smart who figures we'll get to AR level uh, capability and VR level capability. And instead of going out in the universe, we go inwards a hundred percent. And that's, I think that's probably like this
0: this strikes me as, and look, AI complicates things dramatically. And so folding space time becomes trivial. Maybe what I'm about to say isn't true, but, uh, it seems self-evident to me that once you can attach the nervous system truly like your own nervous system and you can manipulate your neurochemistry that you would create dream states infinite worlds yeah that you just go inward why would you bother projecting out which would take so much more energy that's right and so you just go in and you have these incredible experiences um that strikes so me So let's as go a back to your filter. question of purpose now.
1: So because that's I link it back to mm-hmm. that and I think purpose is so important for all of us to have it's driven everything of significance done But let's say that we end up in a world in which, and one of the implications of exponential organizations are that we have what we call, what a friend, Harry Clore, called technological socialism, Hmm. where technology takes care of you versus the state, right? And um, in that world where you're taking care of, what's your purpose? Um, Maybe your purpose is to have fun. Maybe your purpose is to play. Maybe your purpose is to, and this we go back to the matrix again because without the challenge you know mm-hmm. the question is is that empty you know the old uh, twilight zone right where the uh, where the guy goes to las vegas and he's winning all the time and he thinks i, he's in, I know of
0: yeah. the twilight
1: zone but i haven't seen the episodes all uh, right so in this episode uh, this guy dies and go and he's he's been a mafioso and he he's uh he goes to heaven or hell and he shows up, and they're beautiful women every place. He's in a Las Vegas casino, and he's winning every night, and he's winning, and he's winning, and he's winning, and he's, winning and he's all the riches, anything he wants, twenty-four-seven, and it's like amazing, right? His dreams coming true. But like a month later, he's like, I am so tired of winning all the time. God, there's nothing challenging. There's nothing, no challenges at all. And he, and he turns and he says this. Heaven, man, it's it's terrible. He goes. What makes you think you're in heaven?
0: <laughs> so good. I knew that was a punchline. And you still gave me the chills. Yeah, that is uh, that's a real thing, man. Yeah,
1: and, and so, I do
0: think about that. The sort of optimal, like, what's that optimal level of friction? And there was a really fascinating time in my life in building Impact Theory where I needed to get good at Japanese style storytelling, so manga and anime. And I was reading manga like a fiend and watching as much anime as I could. I was getting up super early and working out and then watching like an hour, hour and a half of anime. It was awesome. It's one of the most fun times I've had as an adult. The second I felt like I understood the art form, I couldn't I couldn't there let myself point. do it anymore. Like I, I couldn't enjoy it. I was just like, you already understand it. Now you're just doing it to like, past time doing something that's enjoyable. And it had that same feeling mm. of like winning all the time where I'm like, this isn't interesting. It needed to be moving towards something. Yes. It needed to add up to something. Humans and this, like progress. Yeah, like yeah. this is the very reason that Lisa and I did not buy an island and retire and not engage. It's like, I knew I would end up sitting
1: on a I can tell you beach. other reasons not to buy an island, by the way. I bet you can.
2: (laughs) I mean, look, life is about growth, right? And even if we have plentiful, and today, relatively, we have plentiful. Go back a 1,000 years, we were all spending 28 hours a day in the fields just to put three meals Mm. on the table, right? We've steadily shrunk the amount of time. As we move towards probably some structure like a UBI, we then have an equal opportunity to do lots of interesting things. When we've studied abundance, say the Romans taking over and creating the Roman Empire, the Mughals taking over India and encountering abundance— uh, society it very clearly goes to four things that they do. Uh, food, art, music, and sex. Not in that order. Um, and so that's essentially where you will will end up. And you end up looking at self-expression and the artistic realm much more than you did before, whether in whatever realm you choose. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And by the way, we've done this for thousands of years, right? Buddhists sit in contemplation, they reach enlightenment, and they, they, their, their life is spent contemplating, and that's where they get the most joy. And this is something that I think we'll get to as a species.
1: Hmm. I'd, I'd like to bring it back to the following. One of the things, one of the reasons we wrote this book is to help entrepreneurs and businesses understand that they can make a much bigger dent in the universe than And uh, while it's not about making money, it's about how do you build a significant company that is transforming the planet and is making the world a better place. And what we're finding is that there are a number of ways that companies do this reliably with the biggest dent. And uh, and so we want to get that information out there Um, and, the reality is, if you're building a company today, you need to start with this as your playbook um, in order to succeed because it's table stakes. And if you're running a large scale company, um, if you don't use these attributes, if you're not using these, you are not going to survive the rest of this decade. Mm-hmm. You know what I, what I say is there are two kinds of companies by the end of this decade. you know those that are fully utilizing AI and these exponential technologies and those that are out of business. That's it. Uh, it's, it's this decade where all of this is happening. And so, uh, you know, we talk about the first step in building an EXO is having a massive transformative purpose. And it's going to be that passion driven need to make a difference in the world. That's going to carry you through doing anything big and bold in the world is hard. Unless you're driven by awe on one side of the emotional curve or pain on the other side of the emotional
0: curve, you're going to give up before you get there. No doubt, yeah. I when I'm teaching entrepreneurs, I always tell them that success is a game of attrition. Most people give up, and yeah. you've got to stick it out long enough to figure this out. So that would be this the old paradigm. Is that? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was
1: going to say, you know, in looking at what you're doing uh, and what you've been building uh, in Impact Theory, you 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 do use a lot of the of the ten attributes that follow an MTP. And it'll be mm-hmm. it'll be fun sure. to actually uh, see which ones you're you're cranking on.
0: Yeah, no, MTP is definitely our lead engine. We know what we're doing and we know why we're doing it. And that's a big part of the way that we attract talent, which you guys have talked a lot about. But tying it to this idea of Buddhism, so there obviously all of us get to make a choice every day effectively as to whether we recognize that all of suffering comes from attachment and desire and thusly we go live a monastic life and we remove ourselves completely from that stream or we say i'm going to do deep engagement in a way that's thoughtful in a way where i'm not sort of blindly chasing something it's not want it's not greed but it is very much leveraging the human desire for progress. You talked about that earlier. Um, to see how much I can do with my life, that's something yeah. that that really drives me, is I just want to see. I feel like I was given sort of a, an average hand at cards. I want to see how well I can play it. Yes. Right. And that's extremely intoxicating for me. It's just like, whoa. But,
2: but that's just as powerful, right? If you're, if you're, let's say you're an enlightened monk, there's two ways of doing it. You can go and meditate forever. Or you can go into the world and be of service. Mm. And that's as, as a richer path, a harder, much harder path, because you've got to do stuff and interact with the world, which is messy and ugly. And you put yourself at risk and you put stuff out there. But when you can make a major difference in a particular problem like you are doing, like you're doing, many of our communities are making unbelievable changes and transformation in their societies, their companies, their governments, their countries. This is where the beauty of life comes out. Mm. and and we think that over over the next decade or so every company every nonprofit every government department every impact project will be structured along these lines of these attributes because it's just better and we now have the data to show it I, I don't know if you came across the fortune 100 data that we that we that we I mentioned was, I mean unbelievable right over a Would seven, you summarize those? yeah yeah so we, when we wrote the original book I did a segment on CNBC squawk box and we ranked the fortune 100 against the EXO model. So we gauged to what extent is Walmart purpose-driven or not? To what extent is IBM using lean startup thinking and experimentation? To what extent is GE decentralizing is decision-making or not? And we came up with an index ranking these organizations by this model, essentially ranking the purpose-driven, scalable, flexible, adaptable quotient of each of these, and the bottom is the least flexible, least adaptable. Mm-hmm. Over seven years, we tracked which 10 used those attributes the most and which used them the least. And then we compared the two. And seven years is a pretty decent long amount of time to account for temporal blips in the stock market, et cetera. We found that the top 10 most EXO-friendly compared to the bottom 10, revenue growth was three times higher. Profitability was 6.4 times higher. Return on equity was 11 times higher. But shareholder returns, compound annual growth rate, uh, was 40 times higher. Hmm. And literally, we had to scour the numbers like four times over because it's just it's just too big. <laughs> How could this be? And so now it's pretty clear that as we enter a more volatile world, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value, and we can measure this now completely. Therefore, every organization going forward needs to be architected along this way to deal with the increasing volatility in the world. And the other side of that volatility and disruption is the unbelievable opportunity that's sitting out there. Right, and this is where I think the work that you're doing, Peter, is so important, because you're nonstop showing people the world is unbelievably abundantly full of opportunity. Freaking go get it, go have some fun.
0: So walk me through why why is why does adaptation return so much more to shareholders, and what does one have to do to be adaptive?
2: Okay, so let's take the car industry. Right, you're chunking along making um, combustion engine cars. And uh, you're incrementally improving those cars, eight valves to 16 valves. Okay, you add turbo, you add uh, uh, anti-lock braking systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Along comes Elon with the Tesla and goes totally different paradigm, right? Now, you have two choices right there. You go, ah, this is a joke. It's never going to work. Look at it. It's like the Kodak camera. Uh, The first version is clunky and it doesn't work so well, et cetera. And you keep trying to do things your old way. Over time, you're going to get wiped out because you're not adapting to where the world actually is, right? There's so many hundreds of reasons why an electric car today is much better than a combustion engine car. Um, uh, it, now it's taken the car industry ten years. I would argue that until the Taycan came out last year, that the twenty the, Taycan? the Porsche Taycan, Porsche. the it. Porsche electric car. Um, I would argue that the 2012 Tesla Model S was still the most uh, uh, advanced car in the world until the Taycan, hmm. right? So 10 years it took them to respond. Well, the market cap, you can see the result there, the unbelievable loss of capability, leading edge thinking, et cetera. And you have the same thing happening in drones and in aircraft and the other rockets. things. All industries are geared towards the status quo and trying to make incremental, and this is where you devolve to. Meanwhile, you have breakthrough thinking, breakthrough opportunity, and the recent explosion in AI capability just adds um, a rocket booster to all of that. So now we're going to see new companies emerge that are creating unbelievable value in very, very little time. And if you're a legacy organization, you have to figure this out. And we've actually figured out a tool set for this. That we, we find that we've come up with a ten week engagement that we've run in big companies that hacks culture at scale. And we're able to solve what we call the immune system problem. So when you try anything disruptive in a big company, you, the antibodies attack you. Right. Finance, legal, HR, branding goes you can't you can't do that. The general answer in a big company if you're trying to do anything crazy is no. And we've learned how to switch that to a yes. Mm. Uh, And we've done it now. Don't just
0: gloss past it. Because even so, a company of my size, which contractors, et cetera, et cetera, is a a little over 100 people. Yeah. And there are times where I want to headbutt my own teammates. Yes. Because uh, the heuristic we have
2: is if you're over about 50 people, you have an immune system. Yeah. Mm.
0: I've had that at the XPRIZE. I've had that every place,
1: right? Because you're a quick start. You want to try things. And one of the things that's critical that a lot of companies that are built as EXOs have, they begin with an experimental culture and a data-driven culture with dashboards. And the tyranny of confidence isn't given a place to grow. The tyranny of confidence, what do you mean? The tyranny of confidence is where I'm confident I know the right answer Mm. versus let's run the experiment and see what the right answer is. Because we've lived in this as humanity. You hire the expert, you hire the guy who's or gal who's been in a a competitor and you bring them in and you base what you're doing on their their Mm -hmm. experience level. But that is so limited compared to the world we're living in today. And so how do you build a a data-driven experimentalist organization? I had one other feature on top of that, which is a founder-led company. So you get companies like tesla and spacex or amazon where you've got you know where jeff bezos in his very famous shareholder letter of like 2008 whatever it was says i'm not going to optimize for profitability i'm optimizing for growth and if you don't like it invest someplace else Mm. right so how do you have that kind of uh you know benevolent uh dictatorship um that's where you're then
0: looking at the data to decide, not the way all your competitors are doing it. I have an obsession as an entrepreneur, which is the, uh, as a human, but this really manifests as an entrepreneur. People need to stop trusting themselves so much. Yes. People are so convinced that they right. know, that that they don't even recognize that they have a worldview. And if they do recognize that they have a worldview, they are utterly convinced that it is simply a reflection of what is objectively true. Yeah. And so they're like, no, the way that I see things is the right way. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, is that your view? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Confirmation That's bias. That's my but... view, and it's right, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, uh, we have
1: all, I mean, one of the big things that AI is going to give us as a gift is the ability to overcome all of these biases we have. Right, all these cognitive biases: recency bias, negativity bias, confirmation bias, recency Some cost bias, bias. Yeah. all of these things, which our brain is really sucks at processing, and so we have all these hacks. Right? You trust someone who looks like you. Mm. You give higher weight to the most recent information you got. You give higher weight to negative information over positive yeah. information, and you know there is going to be a version where you go to Jarvis, your your AI, and you say, you know. I want to put cognitive bias alert on.
2: Tell me if I'm being biased. Mm. You know, when we were building Singularity University, um, I was the founding executive director there. Um, a few years in, I was, I'd was i written the book and I was off. And Peter asked me to come to a board meeting and say, what should SU look like in five years or 10 years? And I made a comment. I said, you know, you should shut it down. Because you you build an organization and over time, you spend more time trying to sustain the organization than trying to solve the problem that you set out to solve in the first mm. place. And the DARPA is the big organization; they do this. Every role, even the CEO, is three years long, and then you have to rotate out. You're not allowed really? to hold any role for more than three years. Hmm. And you're then you're measured. They're worried
0: about things getting stale?
2: Stale, and therefore they keep things fresh. And the your legacy is what did you do three? Three year patterns ago, mm-hmm. and was it good or not? So now you're always focused on the long term. You take out all the politics, et cetera. And I think in today's world, if I had to kind of boil it down, I would say you build a company, and after three to five years, you just go, We're going to shut it down after the and force us to reinvent ourselves. Or
1: or, mm-hmm. rein- or reinvent the company, right? Reinvent. When, when the X Prize got won and we had Spaceship One fly, we held a meeting and said, Do we shut it down or do we reinvent ourselves into a platform? Yeah. And we did, and now we're getting ready to launch XPRIZE 3.0, which happened during COVID. I I said, you know, pull the board together and said, this is a perfect opportunity for us to reinvent ourselves. And so we've, I need to brief you on it, but we've reinvented XPRIZE uh, and I'm excited about that. And so there is, you need to be constantly disrupting yourself and it's tough because we're
0: lazy in some ways. Yeah, you tell a story in the book about Elon walking in, seeing him all long-faced and saying, what's wrong? Walk me through that moment.
1: So um, I was amazed. So I've known Elon for 23 23 years now. And when, uh, when Falcon 1, which was their first vehicle, failed on the first time, the second time, the third time, and it succeeded on the fourth time, um they miraculously, and timing is everything, got a contract for the Falcon 9, mm. uh, which was a, a billion dollar contract. And had they not won that, they may not be here today, but they did. And Elon made a incredible decision that took guts. He shut down the rocket line that just began flying. And there were very few successful operations. He said, focus on Falcon 9. Falcon 9 is our future. And so that went on for some number of years. And I was coming into SpaceX and Hawthorne to have lunch with him. And he was kind of, uh, you know, like I said, long-faced. And I'm like, what's what's up? And he goes, uh, I just figured out, you know, Falcon 9 had been up and operating and doing damn well. It's the most successful launch vehicle on the planet by a huge margin, right? It's like, it's like very few, no countries compete with him he's mm-hmm. like the number one spacefaring power and uh and i said what's wrong he goes well, i just figured out the falcon 9 is not going to get us where we need to go mm-hmm. meaning to mars right he's driven by this mtp this massive transformative purpose making manual planetary getting humanity to mars and um i need to start uh afresh and so that has become starship and then he goes on to make a uh a comment that when starship begins uh successfully operating he's going to shut down the falcon nine line wow. which again is like it's like i don't know what the analogy is uh, but it's like you're the most successful at the top of the heap and you're about to shut down that entire mm. revenue flow now whether or not he does or does not that was the statement he made but it's that mindset of focus
0: of absolute focus i'm going to do I mean, whatever dedication it takes. to the mm. big yeah. the big goal Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Okay, so as somebody who knows this intimately from the inside of the need to disrupt yourself or somebody else is gonna do it, the willingness to look at something and go, okay, we're gonna have to start this all over, how do you get your organization on board with that? Because the, the normal human is going to rebel against that. You don't.
2: You don't. So the, the only model we found that works at all is to go to the edge of your organization and build a new capability aiming into an adjacent area or a totally separate area. Right. So, I remember at one of the events at Singularity, Larry Page came to me and said, hey, I was, I was the head of innovation at Yahoo before building out Singularity. And he came to me and said, hey, your unit at Yahoo is successful. Should I do an incubator model at Google? And I said, no, you'll have this immune system response. The more disruptive an idea we came up with in this incubator, the less Yahoo could handle it. Hmm. And you're like, my job description is, is, is not workable. Right? And so there was part of the result that lots of other inputs was Google X, which is separate going into it. They use hardware to go into adjacent spaces, uh, Google Car, Google X, uh, contact lenses, et cetera. The master of this model of going to the edge and doing something different is actually Apple. Uh, and yes, they have a great design capability and a technology supply chain. I argue that Apple's real innovation is organizational because what they do, unlike anybody else, is they will form a small team that's really disruptive, mm. put the team at the edge of the company, Keep them secret and stealth, and they'll say to them, Go disrupt another industry, whether it's watches or retail or payments or glasses or whatever. Now, so they have a portfolio of teams looking at different industries at the edge in secret. And when they see something, they go into it, and that becomes the new gravity center. And this, there's uh, hundreds of examples of this nestle for years tried to run nespresso as a line of business and it just failed F- finally they set up as a separate entity on its own boom every hotel room in the world has a nespresso mm. machine and so that's the only model that we've ever there is, seen there is one th- more
1: which is the di- dictator it is the uh larger than life leader who says this is what we're doing if you don't agree
0: with me leave mm. Do we have a good example of well, that? Well,
1: Elon and, and, and Bezos uh, Steve as Jobs. well, Steve Jobs mm-hmm. for sure. It's like, you know, it's the founder leader. It's very hard to do it in a, uh, an older legacy company that's, you know, hired a CEO. But it's the people, when you have a strong enough MTP and the visionary has a strong enough MTP and they come to work for you, when they come to work for this
0: vision, then they will have faith in you to make those right turns. All right, going back to mindset, how does somebody cultivate that in themselves? Like if you want to become that guy or gal, like what do you do? What is it that an Elon has or a Steve Jobs has that other people can replicate? So
1: we close out the book with mindset and uh, it's the area I'm spending most of my time and I'll I'll phrase it like this for everybody listening. If you look at the most extraordinary leaders on the planet, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, I don't care who's on your list. And you asked what made them successful? Was it the cash they had, the friends they had, the technology they had, or was it their mindset, right? I think almost everybody would say it was their mindset. Your mindset is how you deal with challenges and opportunities. It's your reaction, it's how your neural net is wired. So the question is, if your mindset, if you agree that mindset's the most important thing a leader can have, an entrepreneur can have, what mindset do you have, first and foremost? Where did you get it? And then ask yourself the question, what mindset do you need for the world ahead? Mm. And so I posit there's a few key mindsets, um, and these are what I teach in my my abundance community. Um, uh, first off, a curiosity mindset is fundamental. I know you you believe this through and through. Aggressively. Can you go into a little detail on
0: that? Like when you say curious, what do you mean?
1: So curious is a willingness to actually dig and ask and have conversations. In the chat GPT world, it's everything, right? So it's like, how do I use chat GPT? Open it up and ask it. How do you, you know, and then ask the next question, the next question, yeah. next question. So when you have a kid who is asking you questions, it's go to your Eight, nine, ten-year-old self in that, and just be openly curious and asking as many questions as you can, and going down the rabbit hole. Steve, Wo-
2: Steve Wozniak calls it tinkering. Mm. Right, we're we're in the organization. Can you just tinker and play?
0: What stops people from tinkering or being curious? Quarterly, time
1: constraint,
2: quarterly uh, targets.
0: Yeah, uh, doing
1: stuff that they were told is important. Not having the time. Uh, you know, and I think falling into ruts. So a curiosity mindset, especially if you're an entrepreneur, is like one of the most important things that you can mm. incubate and have. Um, the second mindset for me is an abundance mindset. Um, and the abundance mindset is there is nothing truly scarce. Um, we can talk about this also as first principle thinking, you know, and this is one where uh, Elon uh, and I have had lots of conversations about abundance and that there is nothing truly scarce, right? That that your ability as an entrepreneur to take something that was scarce and make it abundant is what entrepreneurs do great. So, you know, the perfect example is uh, energy, right? We used to kill whales on the ocean to get whale oil to light our nights. Then we ravaged mountainsides for coal. Then we drilled kilometers under the ocean, right? And then we fracked natural gas, but we live on a planet that's bathed in 8,000 times more energy from the sun than we consume Mm -hmm. as a species. And here's the key point. The energy is there, just not in a useful useful form yet. So technology takes whatever was scarce and makes it usable. And
2: abundant.
1: So water is another example. We live on a water planet for God's sakes, right? Two thirds water. Yeah, but 97.5% is salt, 2% is ice, we fight over a half a percent. But there are technologies transforming scarcity into abundance. And first principle thinking, um, I wrote about this in in Futures Faster Than You Think, uh, when Elon decided to make Tesla, um, he basically looked at what was the spot price of lithium and nickel, and could you get the cost of batteries down from first principle thinking? And the answer is yes, we can get it there, and therefore the cars don't have to be that expensive. Mm -hmm. And that led him to go forward, Um, long story there. Uh, So that's abundance thinking, that instead of, if you have a pie, my favorite example of a pie and friends are coming over for dinner, instead of slicing the pie into thinner and thinner slices, which is a scarcity mindset, you bake more pies, which is an abundance mindset. So we're living in a world where you can bake more pies. Everything can be abundant. And I mean, my whole mission on extending the healthy lifespan is about making time more abundant
2: Mm -hmm. for people. Probably gonna take pies out of that equation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're gonna do <laughs> <that laughs> i, I, I don't, with um, pies. Okay,
1: anyway, so uh, an exponential mindset, a moonshot mindset, uh, a, a, a purpose-driven mindset, and a gratitude mindset, other, other mindsets I, I speak mm-hmm. to, and we could talk forever about those. But there are mindsets that are important for us in this day and age.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to curiosity. So when I think about what derails my my team, I love them to death. But one thing that I've encountered over and over is when people's ego gets tied up in being right, ah. and they're not just obsessed with finding the right answer. It's because I think they have not yet accurately identified the way the world works, which is that if you are obsessed with being right, you will be wrong most of the time. If you're obsessed with identifying the right answer, then you can actually make progress. Mm. And so, I mean, this was certainly the trap that I fell prey to in my early 20s that is is like a demarcation line in the sand. My life before I realized that if I built my ego around being willing to stare nakedly at my inadequacies and figure out what the right answer is, instead of trying to position myself to look smart, um, that I could actually move forward. Mm. And I love that-, that that switches everything because there's no, there's not only no emotional friction to admitting that you're wrong, there's like a little twinge of excitement of like, ooh, I've gotten this far being wrong and now somebody's gonna remove the scales from my eyes. Now I really can make this forward momentum. But man, I really like, I, for all the time that I spend on camera telling people how to think in this way, I find it very hard to get somebody who isn't ready for that to like hear it Make that switch and change. If mm-hmm. so you guys have the magic words, I'd love to hear them. So
2: actually, um, this is music to ours in a sense because uh, organizationally, individuals are, are pretty good. We have a lot of tool sets for transforming individual thinking, Tony Robbins, NLP, psychedelics nowadays, etc., cetera, to, to change your own mindset. But the groupthink that comes inside an organization is really hard to change. And we've what we found in EXOs, the characteristics that add up to an exponential organization, by default, have it be embracing of this mindset. So one of the ways we talk about what we've done, in the same way that a Tony Robbins, you go in there and you completely change your subconscious state mm-hmm. from A to B, right? From a scarcity to an abundance mindset, whatever. We're able to do that at the organizational level. We can take an organization that is old thinking, stuck in particular markets, et cetera, and you open it up using a combination of these characteristics the mindset, the MTP, et cetera. So we've learned how how to introduce the ideas, but how do you get
0: them to actually
1: use it? Let me give you the hack. I learned this from uh, Astro Teller. I had him on stage at A360 a few times, and he shared with something that I love. You're. In the midst of developing a product, everybody's absolutely sure of what's going on and how you're going to launch it, how it's going to work. And you hand out a piece of paper to everybody and you say, listen, guys, it's six months from now and the product has just failed and you know why it's failed. Write it down. You know exactly why it's failed. Write it down right now. Mm. And you are incentivizing someone to actually flip their situation and look at the flaws and elevate those. And then you go around the room and, and review uh, why people say it's going to fail. And if you've got two or three people saying the same thing, you know, it's maybe
2: you got to look at that. Test that, that one mm. first. Yeah. The other one we've come across, that's a great hack is, is Amazon, they created something called the institutional. Yes. Have you ever heard of this? No. So they realize in any big company, it's really easy to say no. Mm. One of 20 people can say no, it'll kill the idea. Whereas if you're in a startup and you go to one investor and they say yes, you're off to the races. So how do you deal with that impedance mismatch? So they came up with a policy so that if you're inside Amazon, you come to me with my an idea and I'm your boss. I'm not allowed to say no. My default answer must be yes. Hmm. If I want to say no, I have to write a two-page thesis as to why it's Whoa, a bad idea and post this it is publicly. Brilliant, right? So they've created friction and embarrassment to say no. It's much Whoa. easier for me to go. Oh, go ahead, you'll fail at the next level anyway. And actually one of the outcomes of this policy was Amazon web services, nothing to do with their strategy, not on the roadmap, but nobody could figure out how to say no to it. And now it's one of the most successful products of all time, delivering, I think 75% of their global profits. Wow because nobody could figure out to say no to it, right? So we found a collection of little hacks and cultural transformations in companies that allow you to basically operate in this new modality, being Mm. very curious, purpose-driven, constantly testing assumptions, uh, using small agile teams operating at the edges as autonomously as possible, and then getting the business of the organization done.
0: Wow, I love that so much. I've taken a lot from Bezos over the years. Like he's got some really amazing ideas. I do have to chuckle a little bit that this business genius still got taken down by dick pics. But (laughs) uh, just the human mind is absolutely hilarious. We are all frail. But yeah, none. No, look, I don't even throw shade at the guy. I get it. Live your live your best life. But uh, that's really brilliant, and uh, I will implement that immediately.
2: Yeah, you know, we've had the luxury of watching hundreds of big companies deal in different ways, right? And it used to be the big companies were terrible at this, and then about five or seven years ago, they got started getting better. So instead of an, a Google or Yahoo or somebody saying we're just going to compete with that little startup, they would just buy them. Mm. Zuckerberg saw that he was going to get disrupted by Instagram and 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 and, and uh, WhatsApp, WhatsApp etc. Bought them instead, and in in general, you should leave them alone. Uh, Over time, the corporation can't handle it; gets its grubby fingers messed, and then they tend to typically kill it. Um, But we're starting to learn now. If you look at, say, Google with LLMs, they're actually too scared to release them. Mm. And Amazon just went, "Let's just go for it!" Boom. And uh, I'm open eye. Oh, sorry, uh, Microsoft. I was like, wait, Amazon? Sorry, sorry, (laughs) Uh, Microsoft uh, uh, just went. What about Bard? What do you guys think about Bard? How's it Uh, doing? Very impressive. Uh, I haven't touched it. We've been playing with it. It's very impressive. It's early days yet, but I'm finding fun.
1: fun. Uh, doing stuff on OpenAI and at Bard at the same time and comparing mm-hmm. them, and there are a yeah. few places where OpenAI failed and Bard succeeded, and vice versa. So they're they're both uh, they're both useful. And um, what I, I'd like to mention, if I could, just because I want to go back to the the thesis on the on the book. Um, you know, again, our mission is to give uh, give people who are running large scale companies who want to survive the next ten years a series of this is what you should do if you want to reorganize your, your company. And if you're a startup, this is what you should do to be able to thrive in this decade. Because mm-hmm. the world has changed. I mean, fundamentally, how you start a company today and how you succeed today is very different than 30 years ago. Mm.
0: Um,
2: it's very different than six months ago. Well, yeah, true. It's that that scares me so
0: we like we've really just lived through the most uh disruptive six months Uh, nothing has ever more instantaneously impacted my business model the way that i approach my employees ever than the release of Of COVID. yeah i mean no honestly that (laughs) did not impact my business nearly it did like the day-to-day as you're not seeing people but the fundamental way that we ran our business yes yeah, I, I do it, Not I, I mean, do we're a in a
2: world right now where every doctor in the world is freaked out if they see this, and every lawyer in the world mm. is freaked out. If, yeah, every love, teacher I, in the world is freaked out.
1: I love out. the fact that, every that, that OpenAI, ChatGPT passed the US medical licensing exam two that's months crazy. after it was launched, right? And Dude, the bar that's
2: exam. crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it passed the Turing test. That was the one I didn't see coming, the signing of the, hey, let's slow down letter. And yeah. so I had Yoshua um, Bengio on the show. Hmm. He's considered the godfather of AI. And I said, hey, your name was on that. What made you sign it? And he said, in no uncertain terms, I did not expect it to pass the touring test as fast as it did. That set off every alarm bell that I have
2: and, like, pumped the brakes. This is the thing that we find most interesting because we've known Imad and all these guys for a while. They are blown away by the success of these Mm, models. (laughs) So that's really fascinating that they – that the folks themselves are just blown away. There, and they have no it's idea. still early
1: days, yeah, this is... ladies and gentlemen. It's still early days. You know, yeah. we're going to see so much more coming, and the recursive nature of self-improving capabilities. Mm. You know, I showed this. Um, I showed this work done where a group of physicians were shown these case studies to diagnose a patient, and it was like uh, they took fifty-five minutes and got sixty percent right. And the AI took like 12 minutes and got 85% right. Whoa. And the physicians are going to change next year, but the AI will get much better. And it will be, you know, seconds and 100% right. Bro.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is where this gets really interesting. So I know you have another company, Fountain Life. Yeah. Uh, You guys are using AI. Are you open to talking about this? Yeah, sure. So longevity, I couldn't be more obsessed with the idea. And so as you were talking about it, um, my first question is, how are you guys going to start getting the patterns down because to me this is the big thing you talk to somebody like peter atia and he's like look it is just next to impossible to do really good studies on diet and nutrition, what works, what doesn't work is just too many confounding variables. Yeah. And I was like, AI is gonna answer that. Like it, it can pull a pattern, anything that can be reduced to a pattern, they can figure it out. Yeah. Regardless of like amount of variables, if there is a pattern to be had, it will suss it out. And given that we have some people that live to 120 and some that don't, there yeah. is a pattern. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I'll
1: put it this way. You, there's a lot of interesting things. Not only are there some people who live to 100 and and some people who make it to just 65, there are large species on this planet, like the bowhead whale that lives to 200 years or the Greenland shark that lives to 500 years. And my question is if they can live that long, why can't we? And I said, it's either a hardware problem or a software problem, all right? And we're gonna understand that this decade is the decade we're gonna understand that. It's Mm. gonna be AI and quantum technologies that give us that insight. So Fountain Life is just fountainlife.com. Um, we have these 10,000 square foot facilities. Uh, we have four of them right now. We have a waiting list of like 50 that we'll build out globally. And you come and we digitize you. It's a full body, 150 gigabyte upload of you. Uh, full body MRI, brain, brain vasculature, brain function, a coronary CT, all of this with AI overlay, 80, 80 blood biomarkers, genomics, metabolomics, uh, you know, uh, your your gut. and. Then we do this year on year. This is not a one and done, mm. right? So in the, the first time you do it, we're gonna see is there anything going on that you should worry about? Most of us are optimists about our health and we don't actually know what's going on inside our body. Yeah, fuck. And by the way, the body's really amazing at hiding disease.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna put myself You in know, that it's like it's like you are, you think you're fine, but you know, 70% of all heart attacks have no precedent. Dude, that that one freaks me out that the what the first symptom of uh, heart disease in most men is death. Yeah, crazy,
1: right? And 70% of cancers that kill you are not screened for. So it's this shit that drives me nuts. And so it's like an idiot not to be looking inside your body. And we used to not look because, well, if I find out, can I do anything? The answer is yes, you can. So you want to know. And so we screen people first and then every year upload you every year and it's, looking for the patterns and what medicines, and we have a large corpus of data and the AI ability to analyze that, to say with your genome, with your microbiome, with these meds, with this, it's um, gonna be huge uh, learnings out of this, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm trying to build uh, Fountain Life into an exponential organization. So I'm building around this book That we've built, and every company uh, I'm involved with is like, we need to use these ten attributes in the book, otherwise, we're not going to be able to have the impact globally that we want. Mm. What are you going to tell the AI to look for? Um, So right now, it's it's you don't have to tell it to look for anything. You have to ask it to find any kind of any kind of anomalous patterns. In other words, you're looking for trans. Uh, it's it's data over time, so you're looking for, for changes. Tell me what's over, changed. Tell me what's changing, and tell me... Um, so I'll give you one of the examples. We're building... This is a fun part about Fountain Life. We're building a brand new health insurance company on top of it. Hmm. So uh, if you get Fountain Life insurance, which is available today, your employees... Insurance is a perverse business. Uh, fire insurance pays you after your house burns down life insurance pays your next of kin after they're dead, health insurance pays you after you're sick. What we've done instead is when you sign up, your employees go through a set of pre-testing for us to discover any kind of disease and prevent it from a big payout
0: later down the stream. Right, So it's keeping your employees healthy. And what we want to Wait, do, wait, wait. How does that model work though? So is the employee paying roughly what they would pay They're paying exactly the same or less. Uh-huh. The numbers are the same. And the, the insurance company is actually saying we're going to do preventative
1: We're doing preventative scanning. testing. Yes, preventative testing. And so here's what we're uh-huh. doing. One of the interesting things is there's a number of expensive tests we can do and a number of cheap tests we can do. And one of the things we're doing with AI is correlating which of these lower end tests Correlate highly to the expensive tests, mm. so you'll do the lower end cost test to find a signal in the noise, mm-hmm. and then you'll verify with the expensive test.
0: Okay, this is uh, this is very interesting. Walk me through what your fantasy data would be. My fantasy data would be to track what everyone eats, the state of their microbiome, and when they die. And what else would I want? Maybe their uh, blood glucose levels. I, I want uh, every. I want functional
1: data, the state of my cognitive health, my muscular health, my
0: skin health, my immune system. What are you going to correlate it to? It's got to be tied to something you do, otherwise it's not going to be actionable.
1: It's going to be correlated to my age and my activities and the meds and the supplements and my daily living, right? And so, for example, right now, I'm on a tear to add 10 muscles, 10 pounds of muscle. So I'm doing a heavyweight workout three times a week, I'm eating 150 grams of protein minimum per day. I'm adding creatine onto my diet for that. I'm taking a couple of peptides to increase my you know, IGF-1 levels. And all of these things are aimed at that objective. Now- Do you do TRT at all? I'm doing a small amount of testosterone replacement mm. therapy, yes. Yeah. So at the end of the day, that is uh, an objective I have, but we're way off subject from an exponential organization. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, so the thing that I'm most interested in is what do people apply this stuff to? And so as we look at exponential technologies, yeah. I think one of the most important things for people is longevity. Absolutely. Like if, if you're not getting an extra uh, bit of life out of this, I mean, so if I got better life out of it, sure, I would still be interested, but if we can get better and more, then I'm on board. Yeah. I mean,
1: everything I'm doing right now in building companies, you know, I've got a, uh what will be a 700 million dollar venture fund aimed at longevity. age reversal and longevity right mm-hmm. so investing in these companies and then fountain life my catchphrase is there is like i'm going to prevent people from dying from something stupid preventable which is the first thing right mm-hmm. but then there's a whole slew of therapeutics that are coming down the line how do we how do we test all these therapeutics around the world that we're hearing about from stem cells and exosomes and syllabic medicines and And how do we know if they work? They only know if they, we only know if they work if we have longitudinal data. And that's why Fountain Life is so valuable because we have massive corpus of data a minimum once a year as these people are going through the therapeutics and we're seeing who's it working for? What what are they taking? What's their genomics? What's their, with wearables, you understand the amount of sleep they're getting, the amount of exercise they're getting. We're digitizing ourselves.
2: I mean, this is the, uh, for me, the longevity discussion is as important as the AI discussion because if you can crack through that, it, the the potential and the the implications for society are unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's a complete transformation in society at every level. Right? Mm-hmm. I w- uh, the, one of my favorite experiences over the last ten years, I got asked to come in by the Vatican uh, because they have the worst immune system in the world. They, they try the Pope is trying mm-hmm. to update the really? church, so we did a workshop there. And yeah. one of the conversations we had was, "Listen, you're." Your business model is about selling heaven. And we're entering a longevity future. You actually said that? Yeah. That's amazing. Well, that's your business model, right? Uh, all the religions sell heaven. Did um, They gasp and clutch their pearls when you no, said No, they kind of they, they, they know this is what this is, you're selling hope and you're selling right. eternity, etc. Um as we have longevity extending our lifespan, what happens to your business model if people aren't dying? And that was a conversation that that, that me, it needs to be had. Right? So, I think the 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 broader for one of the things I'm fascinated by is the idea that every institution by which we run the world completely changes now over the next ten to fifteen mm. to twenty years, because it can't. None of the institutions, regulatory legal systems, healthcare systems, intellectual properties, broken education systems, all change completely based on these exponential technologies. The implications of longevity, and we have no feedback loop in those. Mm. Slim,
0: what do you think happens when you die?
2: Um, I'm of the opinion that we um, there's an energy life force in us that then transcends and takes on some other. So I would fall into the reincarnation in, in a conscious way. In I mean, when you study the Tibetans, they've learned how to do it in a conscious way because they actually choose where they're going to get reincarnated into, and they have trackers. They've they've laid down what? cookies. Yeah, do you know this?
0: No, this all sounds oh crazy. It, so so do
2: you know how they choose the Dalai Lama?
0: Uh, I know, like, the movie version, like, there's toys or whatever. Yeah, Things that belong and so, to him. So and...
2: they, they give, so let's say there's five prospective kids that could be the long because they've exhibited a certain character. They give them this massive jar of beads. Mm-hmm. And if they pick the right marble out of that massive jar... That's one marble out of how one many? Mar- Like a thousand in this jar. Okay. okay? Is it that- like the
0: only black marble we've seen? <laughs> no, 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 I, like, indistingu- I can't imagine which one it could be. They're indistinguishable
2: from each other. They're literally, that's. And if they pick that out, that's the entry point into the process. Forget uh-huh. that's the choice thing. That's the entry point. <laughs> then you look at the next set of tests. And the final one, they'll come down like four kids that could be the one. They'll write the name on a little chit of paper, wrap it in four balls of dough. They weigh them all to make sure they're the same. They'll put it in a bowl and they'll start swirling it around. And when the same ball pops out like 10 times in a row, which odds are it should never happen, uh, that's the one. And if you add it all up, there's no way in hell, probabilistically, uh-huh. that you can ever find the next Dalai Lama. Like you've gone through uh, 10 tests This, of is, one to a this is my curiosity gene. And this is like just fascinating. Here. Yeah, This is just <laughs> utterly fascinating. So... Uh, if you when you study them, they've I've, I've spent some time with some Tibetan priests and so on. They and they said it used to take fourteen lifetimes to reach enlightenment, but mm-hmm. we've gotten better now. Now, if you work really hard, you can do it in one lifetime. Right? Uh, and so you transcend that. And, and frankly, my belief is that you die, you your energy of your soul, whatever that is, from a, phys- a phenomenological perspective, we don't quite understand. It goes and rests elsewhere
0: mm-hmm okay so is the perception i have that i have just infinite amounts of not existing followed by somewhere around the age of five i start remembering things is that an illusion and i am on some i don't want to call it a loop but effectively a loop
2: could be uh i mean look at look at the tree growing a leaf right at the in the fall the leaf falls off mm-hmm. and in the spring of a new leaf is that a new leaf? Is it a reincarnation of the old leaf? You get this is where Ray I think says it best when he talks about this stuff and stuff like it. he goes language is a really thin pipe to talk about concepts as deep as this because you get stuck in the verbiage. Yes,
0: mm-hmm. but that also feels like a way of letting us off the hook for not pursuing uh, an argument, which I get. Like we will reach the edges of what we're able to articulate. Yeah, but um, I do like coming to understand at least people's own internal logic so is to me uh, a leaf uh, another leaf is like another bit of hair right let me
2: tell you where i stand i having looked at the data long enough for me reincarnation is a real thing
0: okay what data are you looking at
2: um so there's a story i tell you uh, this is going to. So, uh, in uh, about 20, 30 years ago at the University of Virginia, um, an elderly fellow died, left behind a chunk of money for anybody that wanted to study reincarnation. Okay? Now, I may have the details slightly wrong, but this is, I'm giving you the gist. You can look it up yourself. Um, some young graduate student goes, Oh, pot of funding, I'll study it. Goes and creates a big um, research uh, database of. Uh, there's a phenomena where some two-year-old suddenly knows who they were in a past life and can mm-hmm. walk into the house where they lived and know that this was hidden behind the painting. Happens a lot in India where people are more accepting of this, et cetera. The most extreme example of this was a kid born in the favelas in Rio, having never been out of the favelas, suddenly starts speaking some weird language. So if they think the kid's gone mad, taking to a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist goes, it doesn't exhibit madness, but this, is, I think he's speaking a different language. Take him to a linguist, and after a bunch of research, they find this kid is speaking a dialect of Aramaic that hasn't been spoken for 2,000 years. And the kid's never been outside the favelas of Real. So there's a bunch of phenomena like this. The one that this guy focused on was this idea that at the age of two or three, some little child suddenly remembers things and knows things about that they couldn't possibly have known. So he starts tracking this and putting this into a big spreadsheet. So I was, I heard him speak at an event, and I said, well, what does it take to get into your database? Because it's pretty vague. It could be somebody, how, how do you tell if something, and he said, well, it has to be something physical. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, if the young child thought they were somebody else in a previous life, is there a scar or a birthmark or an allergy or a disfigurement that's the same? And if one of those meets the criteria, one of those is the same as the person that died, then that, I feel that's qualified enough to, I'm like, that's a pretty high bar. Um, to have one of those four things present in, in this. How many entries are there in your database? And the number blew my mind. It's something like 3,500. So this guy's 3,500 fully researched cases where a two-year-old um, uh, said that, oh, that was me in a previous, that was my life before and and had the one of those matching things. That to me is a ridiculously significant, statistically significant amount of data. And it turns out that distance was fascinating. Distance was almost, the the child that was born was almost within four kilometers of the person that died. That was interesting. The second was that the time, the age of the child, was almost always, uh, the baby was born five months after the person died.
0: So there's something something about that period of time. Yeah. And have you always been open to that? Like, I am violently skeptical I'm, but, no, I'm not, I, I'm not
2: I, I mean, I'm from India originally, so I have an inherent acceptance, but I was raised in a very diplomatic Western family. My dad was an engineer. I was, I did engineering for a while and then physics. So I came across this later. Um, but the data for me is per- fascinating and show me something that countervails that.
1: You know, I, I keep on telling Salim, I would love to have an experience I can't explain. I've never had a UFO sighting mm-hmm. or anything that I can't, with a scientific, technological mind, explain.
2: I've had hundreds, including the episode 10 years ago with you. Which What's one the episode 10 years ago? Can I tell you a funny story? are so building <laughs> sing- We're building Singularity University, on, three years in. The model has gone from zero to one. It's working. And I'm fried. My wife and I got married the week of the launch of the the Whoa. thing. So I, I'm at NASA 20 hours a day. She's hardly seen me. And he, Peter and I were disagreeing a bit on strategy. You wanted me to keep the faculty at NASA. And I thought we should take them out into the world. And if you want to change the world, we should get out there. And Peter's like, no, let everybody come here. It's easier to logistically to manage, et cetera. And after three years, I'm kind of really burned out and we're trying to have a baby. My wife's like upset cause we're never home. So I said to Peter, look, I'm going to need a break and et cetera, et cetera. Two days later, Peter says, okay, we've had a board meeting. We've replaced her. I thought, wow, that was fast, but okay. Now I'm free, but, and very uh, friendly uh, overall. Legacy is now set. So great. My wife then gets pregnant. Um, So I said to her, listen, we've had no alone time since we got married. Once the baby comes, that's gone. So let's take three months before I do whatever I do next and enjoy each other. And then she said, great, but I don't want to be anywhere near NASA. I can't explain the standing of my family and friends. They think NASA, like the Bahamas, uh, it's a big problem. You pick the place. So she researches for several weeks, picks a penthouse vacation rental in Santa Monica overlooking the ocean. Um, And she's a yoga teacher, so Santa Monica's ground zero for this. So we move in, put suitcases down. I go out to get a coffee, come back. And she's standing with her hands on her hips. She's very upset. She's like, what's wrong? <laughs> we picked the wrong place. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, I said, look at this vista. You, you, this is amazing. She goes, come to the balcony. She goes, see the house across the street right there with the bamboo trees? I'm like, yeah. Peter's house. <laughs> in the whole of LA. We're like That's next hilarious. door, right? Now. <laughs> if you tried to make that happen, you could not make that happen, right? I call it karmic uh, mischief. And, you know, and I'm if you think about uh, it, almost every major thing in your life has happened because of a weird orthogonal experience.
1: Yeah, but just like, think of the thousands of things that you didn't notice that actually happened as well. This is selection bias, I'm yeah, sorry.
2: Maybe, but Carl, <laughs> Carl Jung. Yes. Yep was very, very clear that there's a, there's an, a causal stream of reality that everybody can see and you can link experiences A to B to C of consequence. And there was an entirely a causal stream of reality, like wormholes with things that are happening, etc. And that we couldn't see. I'm and still that was waiting his, for those
1: to, aliens to come and you know take me home. It's but you've done some psychedelics. I have I've had some I've had some great well listen, yes, but uh, I I still in the normal universe that i inhabit there hasn't been i haven't seen anybody levitating or haven't seen something that is like that's
0: miraculous
1: you know a coincidence interesting miraculous
0: no have you i have not no i take a i am very much uh um what do they call that where materialist like it's all cause and effect the odds that our sense of um that I control my life is probably an illusion. And yeah, that just all makes sense to me. Like if you had a computer that could track every atom since the beginning of time, that you'd be able to predict where we're gonna be in 10 Mm. years, and you'd be able to replay the universe all the way back to the big bang, that just makes sense to me. And that doesn't diminish my sense of awe in the slightest. Mm -hmm. Like I look at- And by the way, I I asked the question, if you knew with certainty that you were living in a simulation, Would it change anything? And, no. and the Literally. answer is no. A, no. B, so you were talking about Project Kaizen before we started rolling. That's its premise yeah. is that this is a simulation and it doesn't matter. It's yeah. still all I the think same. It's great.
2: Uh, you know, it, so if I could finish that story with this weird coincidence, I got to a point about five, seven years ago where I was having not this insane kind of coincidence. It used to happen about once a year in my life started happening quarterly and then it started happening every two weeks and i can barely process one in the next ridiculous coincidence on me and i was freaking out because this is like really messing with things so i have a a cousin who's done 40 years of Taoist meditation Mm. in the woods etc so i said to her she's my resident understanding the universe person so i said help me with this she's like well listens to me for a bit she goes well duh you've told the universe you're ready for anything they'll give you everything i'm like wait what She goes, you have to Come to an agreement with the energies in the universe to only give it to you when you're ready for it. I'm like, where's the manual for that? So she coached me on this, and it, and you can do this. You can do it's you know if you if you did it at the fully reductionist level, it's creative visualization, right? You visualize what you want, and things can happen, etc. Um, and the, there's a we all do that. You do that. That's what the MTP Medif- is all about, right? You, yeah, sure. you, you you program yourself and your surroundings, your subconscious to out for the outcomes you want and then those things happen.
1: But there's a but but those outcomes occur to a large degree because I'm outwardly communicating my massive transformative purpose. I'm telling the world those people who gravitate to it are coming to me and they're bringing things to me that are in line with that MTP. It's not like I'm just meditating on on in silence and the yeah, world but, is changing.
2: But what you're actually doing is you're programming
1: reality. Or I'm programming how I deal with reality. Both, right? Reality is happening, and again, a mindset is how I deal with opportunity or scarcity. Someone comes to me with something that someone would be scared of, and I'm like excited about it, and I go in a different course than the other person. Mm.
0: So I didn't know you'd done psychedelics. What was yeah. your response? So you guys have both done it, I assume. Yeah, I, I went. Yeah.
1: I went into a you know, psychedelics not for joy or pleasure, but with, uh, with shaman guiding and i have done ayahuasca a number of times i've done uh, a combination of psilocybin and um and uh god uh, mdma uh but for me it was my dmt journeys that were the most significant have you done DMT? Uh, no Bufo? i haven't
0: done any uh, i've microdosed psilocybin to yeah. virtually yeah. no effect so the uh the dmt
1: which is also called the toad or bufo uh, uh dimethyltryptophan i think is, the, is the dimethyltryptamine kind of, tryptamine, um, was uh was extraordinarily compelling um and uh it is a dissolution of the ego um which is and a connection with the universe that lets you know that love is a pervasive force and we're all connected in that regard and that I had my most significant um visualization about what if you ask me the question uh what do you think happens after after we're alive after we die uh that was my that was it first of all it got rid of the fear of death hundred hmm. percent, which Why? is probably the most extraordinary. Because it, you gave realize me, everything is connected. Everything is connected, and we're just part of the universe. And it's it's a transitory. So I want you to imagine. This is the visualization I had, which gives me goosebumps still to this day. Uh, I'm I'm coming out of my journey with. And these in these uh, DMT journeys are very short, uh, you know, twenty minutes thereabouts, unless you're Salim, because they last longer there. Uh, but let me finish. So I'm I'm seeing this this sea of energy, just like a, a frothing sea of infinite energy, a plane of energy in every direction, and I see coming out of the sea of energy two double helices, and they come out of the energy, and they're there, and then they go back into the energy, and that was it. And it was the realization I can see it like it was yesterday. I, it's a realization of this infinity of of creation and energy and life emerges from it, consciousness emerges from it and then re-enters it. I can, you know, listen, this is my mind giving it meaning. We are meaning-making machines.
2: But. Anyway. Uh, so let me, so you've had that. You're you're just kind of rationalizing it in your previous experience. I can't. I That's fine. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. But let me give you, tell you why I got excited by this whole world. 2012, we had a lecture at Singularity. I think it was Chris harm, And he'd, what he'd been doing was doing a whole bunch of uh, clinical trials with people taking different dosages of MDMA, psilocybin, etc., and putting them through an fMRI machine. So in the 60s, when Timothy Leary and all these guys were taking drugs, they had no idea what They were, they were just chucking it down, right? Mm. But this, now we know exactly that this dosage substance of substance A will do this to neural circuit B, and know exactly the emphasis and how much of an impact it'll have, etc. And I found that fascinating because now we have a feedback loop. What got me interested in DMT. A feedback loop to what end? Well, because now you can see what neural circuits are being amplified or impl- impacted Activated. and you can now play with, play okay, with it. Okay, so I have to ask then. So knowing how
0: you're creating that state by manipulating certain neurons in your brain, sure.
2: how, how do you see an allergy or a scar? I don't know that. I, I wish I did I don't but it's fascinating that that's there and the numbers that it's there mm. if it happened three four times you go ah three four times thirty five hundred times I got I gotta start looking at that and that's that's the, just the sheer numbers compel you to look at it a mm. little more deeply but so for me the, so now it look let's look at what DMT does DMT what it does is suppress the parietal lobe which is where your sense of self sits mm. when you can take a dosage of it, you suppress that parietal lobe and you are now free to explore the higher realms of your consciousness that you didn't have access to before.
0: So when DMT is going, is that all that's happening? Is is Are there any areas that are more active or is it literally just shutting off the sense of self?
2: Unclear, but it seems the primary function is that it reduces the uh, activity in the parietal lobe. I'm so, so fascinated you, by and how And then many- you start looking at other areas. And uh, now, what's really interesting to me, on top of that, is we've. It turns out there's lots of old practices. Whirling dervishes, when they do their Turkish spinning, end up with a DMT release. They now know that. No, DMT when, is a natural. DMT, it was, is, DMT a natural is naturally occurring in, in your brain. It, mm-hmm. it gets released twice in your life: once at birth, once at death. Hmm. So when people have a near-death experience, they see the white light. That's DMT releasing in the brain. Interesting. Right? So now they've found religious experiences. I'll hook you up, buddy. Almost all religious okay. experiences are essentially you work the physiology of the body to a point where you have a DMT release. Tantra and mm. Kundalini work results in that. They take ground energy, lift it through your body, and you end up with a DMT yeah, release. I, I
1: don't take mm. uh, the DMT journey um, lightly at all. It's one of the most insightful. And again, I, I, I experienced it with reverence and uh, awe. And, and awe and um, as a means to explore uh, myself in the universe in a, in a, in a different way. Uh, and I'm very thankful for it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm very intrigued. I ask about this a lot.
1: And, and by the way, you know, I, I got to a point after it, I said, I'm just going to share it openly. I don't plan to run for president and I don't care uh, what anybody thinks about it. It was critically important to me. Yeah, it's
2: beautiful. Yeah. You met Michael Janssen a couple of days ago. Yes. Um, uh, so one of the most fascinating things about him, he's one of the most present people I've ever met. And I said, how do you maintain this? Like you have this incredible ability to just let things go, not worry about stuff, things happen. Everything just passes through him. And and it doesn't stick. It's amazing. He just kind of releases instantly. And he, he couldn't answer. And I kept wanting to pull it out. And he goes, oh, I've done a hero dose a few times. I go, hero dose? So normal dose, I guess, is 100 milligrams of psilocybin. A hero dose is when you do like five grams. It's mm-hmm. like a factory reset on your nervous system. I'm like, holy crap, you've done that? He goes, I do it every year. And, and so all of cognitive biases that he may have built up, et cetera, are constantly getting released. Mm-hmm. And therefore he operates in this unbelievably present form. I think that's just amazing. And I'm completely impressed by the younger generation microdosing all you know, the time. You
1: know, one of the conversations uh, I've been having at home recently is, is the human species um, waking up, right? You've heard of these conversations, Sam Harris and all. Right? Yeah, I was gonna
0: ask you guys if you've heard him describe his heroic dose. And
1: and Amazing. so when we talk about becoming conscious at a species level in the next uh, foreseeable future, one of the questions that, um, uh, that Kristen asked was, are we becoming conscious before AI becomes conscious? Hmm. So this is an interesting conversation.
0: That would be, I mean, it would be very interesting. I don't know if I can imagine an entire societal level awakening, but certainly as humans continue to progress, as we are able to share ideas so much faster in the same way that culture has stacked on the technological side, if it stacks on the insight side and we imagine
1: having a, brain-computer interface connection to the cloud along with a billion other people mm. and sharing one's thoughts. I, I call this the meta-intelligence where we become conscious on a large level, right? You and I and Salim are all collections of 40 trillion human cells. You're not a single life form. 40 trillion human cells and then trillions of bacteria, viri, fungi, and so forth, but you operate as one. Mm. Right. And so, uh, are we going to become conscious yet on another level?
2: To bring it back to exponential organizations, um, a traditional 20th century organization we would think of as unconscious, it's trundling along, trying to get profits, et cetera. And an EXO is a very conscious organization. What makes it conscious? MTP. It's a massive objective. purpose. Plus it's constantly sensing with a feedback loop. It's constantly experimenting. It's allowing its people to operate in a decentralized, autonomous way to make decisions on their own. It's like an amoeba moving around, uh, sensing the world and little by little evolving. So
1: there are I wanna I want to bring this back because I really want the community here to hear this and I want to use um I want, I want to use impact theory as the example here. So uh, there are 10 attributes that make an exponential organization. Um, they have the uh the uh, acronym uh scale and ideas and um uh if we could i just want to take off the ones
0: that that you hit so let's begin
2: staff on demand so you use use staff on demand
0: we do a bit but i actually don't love that it was one of the things in your book i want to talk about but so okay okay, staff on demand yes we do okay
2: second community
0: yes very much i mean community is massive for you right um
2: Third, AI and algorithms? Yes, aggressively. Okay. Aggressively. Uh, fourth, leveraging other people's assets? I don't know what you mean by that. Cloud computing? Yes. Prime right, sharing. you don't
0: have computers, servers in your closet that you're using. We um, do have some of that, but not nearly as much as we leverage the cloud. Right. Yeah.
2: The prototype there is Airbnb. That entire business model is tapping into other people's mm. bedrooms, making them available. And the, four, the fifth one in scale is engagement. Gamification, incentive prizes, Web3, it's yeah, so your yeah, whole yeah. thing, right? right? You were like a master of that. So those are the five externalities, and EXOs use one or more of them. allows them to keep a very small resource footprint and then scale very quickly. TED uses community very effectively, for example. Then there's five internal mechanisms that allow you to manage culture and drive the dashboard and the control framework of the organization. The first is interfaces to those externalities. So think about Uber's interface with its drivers or Apple's interface with its App Store developers. It's an automated API-driven interface that allows you to programmatically manage the abundance on the outside and then add value to it. The second one is dashboards. And this is real-time business metrics to track what's happening in the organization. And I organization. assume you use
0: dashboards left, right, and center. Right. And not as much as we should, but for our funnels, yes. For your funnels, yeah. sure.
2: And then OKRs for team performance and team management, mm-hmm. we found as them. So those are dashboards. The E is experimentation, which is lean startup thinking, constantly testing assumptions, nonstop running of experiments, and the a culture of risk-taking inside the organization, constantly testing the edges and seeing what works, what doesn't work, etc. The A is autonomy decentralizing decision-making and allowing people to self-select what they want to work on as much as possible. Which is one of the
1: hardest things for a CEO or an entrepreneur to do is, is say, listen, here's our mission. Our mission is 10 million viewers, whatever it is doing this and this and this. We want to give you the authority and autonomy to go and work on projects that are aligned with our MTP. Go.
2: Google does this a bit. Um, the master of this, I, I should tell this quick story. There's a Chinese appliance manufacturer called HAIER, H A I E R. They make like 55 million fridges and ovens a year. Jesus. Yeah, they're a huge company. Um, and uh, um, 80,000 people operating in a classic pyramid form, command and control, hierarchical as heck. CEO one day decides, can't meet my corporate goals with this structure, blows it up, turns 80,000 people into 2,000 teams of about 40 people each. Each team has a P&L target, each team elects their own leader, and most insane, each team decides to do whatever they want to do. Now, you go to any business school in the world and say, I want to make fifty-five million fridges, and mm. they'll tell you you need a ton of centralized demand forecasting, inventory management, supply chain, da 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 it turns out you don't. These literally, these 2,000 teams work autonomously like a beehive. Every team is deciding what they How want do to do. How do they
0: decide what teams to keep?
2: They don't they the teams decide on their own. You can't get fired. If you, you can't if your team doesn't meet its PL targets, you have an issue. And the way they meet their PL targets is they work on a product and the products are the revenues are pooled against that mm-hmm. product. So when they I literally v- can't imagine this, it's this it, there's seems a whole impossible. book. There's a whole book written on this. It's I mean, an I amazing case book. study. What's the book called? Uh, I'll get you the title. Please, the case because... study is higher. Um and when they want to vote on what when what decide what feature should we go in a new fridge, they vote. And 2,000 teams that are constantly outwardly facing with vendors, suppliers, partners, customers are come up with a much better decision than some product strategy team hold up with market forecasts and research groups, right? And so uh, GE Appliances actually gave up and sold that whole division to higher because they couldn't compete hmm. uh, because you can do so much more with a decentralized organization. We're not quite ready for DAOs, but we will be over time. And you're kind of building one in in its. I'm in not. Way?
0: I'm violently not building
2: a DAO. Well, think about what you're doing, right, with your metaverse environment. Mm-hmm. Anybody can come in, self-provision, and play in that environment. They can play in that environment.
0: Yeah. We're certainly trying to build things so that they can build in that environment, but that is that's a platform play like i get platforms yep and so our fantasy would be on a long enough timeline where, like the youtube of video games that's right so people can come in and build uh, not we we could go down a rabbit hole about how we're going to be different than roblox but we have a vision but leveraging some of that but this is like i literally wrote before you started talking the thing i want to talk about is how you leverage autonomy so the way that we think about it at impact theory is I want people to be able to make decisions in their area. Like, okay, your function is art, for instance. I'm not going to come in and turn you into a pair of hands. I want you to think for yourself. You understand our objectives. Go do the art thing. But we set the objectives as a company. Then yeah. the department sets their own objectives. And then the individual works with their supervisor to set it. Yeah. But this is not, hey, you're in a team of 40. And like, oh, I hope you meet your P&L. Like, I can't fathom How you get to that. I have to imagine that this is never going to be the standard.
2: It's non-trivial to implement, but when you can implement, it's very powerful. Let me give you two examples that bridge the spectrum. Mm -hmm. One is if you're an employee and you join Google as a new hire, okay? You're not placed on a team. What they do is go, you've got six months, float around, meet different teams, work with them, da-da-da-da-da. How do they decide to um, hire you? You you have to hire They hire, a they hire, smart. They hire basically. That's the, it. They're Intellect, super smart. I just and know we know smart. we need Python developers, so hire the Python developer. Now, do you work on Gmail? Do you work on Google Maps, et cetera? What you do is you float around as that developer or front-end person or designer, whatever your skill set is. And you float around. You meet the different teams. You see where you have chemistry. You go, I really love what they're doing on Google Maps. Team seems to like me. They go, sure, come and join us. Now, if after six months you haven't found a team, bigger conversation. You probably don't fit there for some reason. But if you found a team after choosing over six months, all of a bunch of different options, you're probably where you really, really like being, right? So now off they go. So that's one example of implementing this in the new hire model. The full extent of autonomy, I'll give you the example of Tangerine Bank in Canada, which is used to be ING Direct. So they operate on this fully autonomous basis. They have no CEO, no reporting lines, no management teams, no middle management, no meetings of any kind. They literally operate on a beehive where each employee self-selects as to what they want to do. Okay? Now, you're a regulated bank. Canadian banks are very regulated, mm-hmm. right? So what happens is when the marketing guy goes, oh, let's do an online promotion because he's self-selected, wants to focus on that, and they launch an online promotion, everybody flows to the phone banks and helps out getting phone calls. When it's regulatory reporting time, they all flood to the regulatory systems and fill out all the paperwork to to fill out all the forms to show the Canadian government that they're viable. The most amazing example I've seen of this is Valve software out of Seattle that makes the Steam platform. About 400 people, same ethos, no CEO reporting lines. So if I spot a bug in the software, I grab three people, we go fix the bug, we disband Every employee self-selects what they want to work on and it sounds completely like a joke, but they get more revenue per employee than Microsoft. They make a fortune. So it's very doable. Man, you have I, to start have it. To you have to this. start it with that principle in mind. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. physics.
1: Something a particle born above the speed of light can't go slower and below the speed <laughs> of light can't exceed the speed of light. I think you have to. This is found, founding uh, starting conditions for your company.
0: Yeah, this is. Uh, th- I don't know what I find we... harder to believe: reincarnation or that <laughs> you can do this. But look, I I don't shut down emotionally. I'm very open. I just everything that I know with perhaps just my limited skill set. That is a recipe for chaos, or you have to hit a certain size. Like When I think about Google being able to do that, there's no way that you can start like that. I get how you can get so big, you have so much surplus money that yeah, you can let a person surplus. wander around yeah. for six months with no like real specific yeah. job, or that you can hire somebody just oh, you know Python and you're smart, great. You
2: know, you know, Valve software is about 400 people, it's not that big. But they're also big. the
0: company, when when you said, oh, uh, we're doing a, a case study on Valve in the book, I was like, oh, you mean the company that couldn't get Half-Life 3 or 2, whichever it was, out for 15 years? I was like, yeah, I'm not
2: surprised. But then you said that they make more per employee, so I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, so, so it, uh, directed execution turns out to be non-trivial in these organizations. It's like DAO governance, right? It's an oxymoron. It's very yeah, hard to, to get. Right, so, um, uh, but in terms of resilience, unbelievable because you cannot break that organization because everybody's self-selecting when there's a problem, they naturally find the problem, they go fix it. I think you need to still, you amazing. need to hire for that. People you need to have. You absolutely have to hire. You can't, hire. you know, Tony Shea tried for three years to implement that into Zappos and it just failed. Mm. You can't bring it into, it. this is why we think, say when you're an existing organization and you want to turn into an EXO, don't, go through the nightmare of trying to transform yourself, put up, create new exos on the edge and let those slowly become the new gravity. What was
0: the example of the company? Maybe it was the washing machine company or the fridge company, but they literally were like, Oh, we're firing everybody. And then a third of them them. left and they restarted with two thirds and they did just fine.
2: Uh, Zappos did that. And so did hire. Uh, It was hired that in the book. In fact, Zappos, when Tony Shade first suggests, he voluntarily said, who wants to move to this model? And everybody was like, yeah, this is crazy. We're not doing that. So then he went, we strongly suggest that you move to this model. Then finally he said, if you don't move to that model, you're fired. Mm. And even then it failed. Very hard to implement into a legacy organization. Did we finish the attributes? Oh, so uh, autonomy. And yeah. the final one is social technologies. Um asana slack zoom chatter yammer etc cetera, It et cetera. allows you Implement to glue people together peer-to-peer yeah. right we found we have really good evidence today that peer-to-peer collaboration is much more powerful than traditional top-down command and control thinking mm.
0: so what do you guys think about what elon is doing at twitter he recently was interviewed and he said it is immoral to work from home and i was like wow yeah we had this conversation yeah. yesterday about you know uh
1: Listen, I miss having an office setting. Mm-hmm. I do, and I miss, and I, I recognize and realize that the intensity of the amount of work that gets done when a group is together is substantially higher mm. than alone. But you know, the flip side of that is the geographic arbitrage that I can get access to talent that and I might not otherwise get to move to Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, my. CEO lives in the Bay Area. My VP finances in Spain. My head of community is in Cape Town. We have a totally distributed organization. Mm. And yes, we're less efficient than if everybody was in one place. But I can operate across multiple time zones seamlessly. People are living where they want to live. They're living with their families, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a believer in the remote work side.
1: Yeah, I also think we're going to see a transition as uh, as the next generation of metaverse systems come online, Mm. you know, if we're, there will be a point where we are sitting in the metaverse and I feel like I'm here with you Mm. and having this conversation and hopefully the glassware becomes light enough and easy enough where it's, it's very interactive.
2: The key heuristic, I think when you think about Elon with Twitter and et cetera and people is, do you trust them? Do you trust your people? And most corporations operate out of mistrust. You're like checking things and you have to file travel expense reports, et cetera, et cetera. And the entire structure is set up to mistrust you. Uh, And when we move to this new model of EXOs, by default, you tend to trust the teams to do what they're trying to do best. You're trying to trust. Trust over control, right? Trust beats control is one of the key implications. Jerry Mikulski who's one of our community members said this brilliantly. He said, um, Uh, scarcity equals abundance minus trust
0: it's interesting for me it doesn't come down to trust i don't even want to have to think about the people on my team i want to play my position i want them to play theirs and i never want to have to think about it it really comes down to results and focus and like you need Like this is going to be interesting saying to you guys, but you need some variation of the immune system in that the immune system will detect cancer. So yes, it can say no to things that it shouldn't say no to, but it can also stop the free riders. And the, the just reality is that you will get people using game theory to be like, oh, you can hide in this company and everybody can just do whatever the hell they want you will get people that then just become selfish and then other people look at that and resentment builds and so you get other people uh, how do you, you do that you know there's up? there's a uh, my i'm
1: moving all of my companies onto something called uh, EOS the entrepreneurial operating system mhm <laughs> is so formal? it formal it is it's a it's a uh, it's so you can go look it up entrepreneurial operating system and um uh and what we do is we meet And it's a process of thinking and running your organization, sort of like an operating system for a company. And we have what's called a a 10x meeting every week with the entire group. We're reviewing our rocks, our our action items, our our dashboards, and everybody's got assigned specific actions. And uh, and it's not possible to hide Mm -hmm. in that regard. Uh, If
2: you properly implement OKRs, you, you really can't hide. And yet, you can give people a lot of autonomy and they can do, go do their thing, but whether it's EOS or whatever the model is, um, it brings it together. So we have today very modern team and individual performance structures that allow us to handle that. Tr- you can hide in traditional organizations because right? there's 20 developers on some team and nobody knows really who's the hmm. who the rock stars are. HR never knows. Right? Yeah. One thing we've noticed, uh, the, the particular indictment I would have is Today's most big corporations are structured in a matrix structure. Products on the verticals, and they have legal HR, branding, privacy, et cetera. And Terry Semmel, when he was running Yahoo, made the mistake of putting in a matrix structure into it. And it's like that structure is great for kind of command and control, but it's terrible for risk taking and it's terrible for speed. Because every time you try and do something, you want you have to clear all those levels. So it was taking us close to a year to release some feature on Yahoo personals. Mm. And MySpace was released, and Facebook was the killer here, where they came along and Zuckerberg said, if you feel your code is ready, take it live on the live site. We'll give you access to the live site. Your code better be good. <laughs> Otherwise, if you take, the, take us down, you're fired. But the developer has got such a sense of empowerment and autonomy from that. And, and wow, he trusts us to let us take our code live. They're rolling out features every week. Do they still do that? I'm not sure if they still do that, but that was what got them. That was what blew MySpace away, blew mm. Yahoo away mm. at the time.
1: The early but, days of high risk taking for any entrepreneurial company is, is amazing. We're, we don't have a legal department yet. <laughs> we yeah. don't have yeah. an HR department And yet. over
2: time, power accrues to the, the horizontals because they have no incentive in saying yes. Mm. And so when we coach CEOs, we basically say, take all those horizontal layers and every three, four years just blow them up and reinvent them.
0: So tell me, where can people follow along with you guys to learn this stuff in detail to get help executing?
2: We built a community around this whole model called, and it sits at openexo.com, and people can go there. It's free to join. We now have 24,000 consultants, entrepreneurs, innovators in 140 countries that are using these models to apply them to come join us on the masterclass.
1: Yeah, either join us live on the 6th or get the masterclass in the book and the AI afterwards.
0: If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.